Uh, that's interesting. I never had any specific story ideas like that, but if there's one thing that's come out of this is like, God, it would might be fun to write X-Men again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're doing that X-Men Legends book where oh, yeah? people come back for like one-offs or like two issues. You should pitch one. I think that'd be fun. I don't, I don't think I, I don't think Marvel ever wants me back, to be honest. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today for episode 99 is a very special guest, Mr. Chuck Austin, best known to X-Men fans for his lengthy run on Uncanny X-Men and a little bit of new X-Men during the reload shuffle where all the titles moved around. He also wrote on Exiles a bit, then had some time on Avengers. And as this is at times a Captain Britain podcast, I may have a few questions about that. These days, Chuck is best known for his work in animation. He was part of the massive success Steven Universe and was a co-showrunner with N.D. Stevenson of the revival of She-Ra, She-Ra and the Princesses of Power, which was a huge, huge hit. And I got a couple of questions about that, too, because sure. people could not resist. And I said, please, let's try to keep it to comics, but I, I will allow one or two questions about She-Ra. Chuck, how are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks. It's been a little chaotic. We talked about that before, but uh, much better now. Thanks. Yeah. Are you all settled in at your new place? Chuck's been moving, which is why the, the episode is a little bit later than I had initially scheduled. And thank you all for your patience on that. Uh, yeah, the move actually has gone uh, quite well. Uh, and I'm I'm kind of liking it here. Good. It's are fun. you out in L.A.? I'm actually I'm in New York this week for my birthday, but I'm actually I live in L.A. So we should okay. get a drink or something sometime if you're out. Yeah. There. Yeah. Uh, it'll be harder for me now because I'm in Riverside now, which is oh, further. Out so, from... yeah, a bit further. But you never know whenever when you're whenever you're in town, we'll figure it out. I get in there periodically for work and jobs. For sure. So. Yeah. I imagine you've got a lot of generals and things. So just yeah. pop off and we'll get a beer. We are here to talk about your run on the X-Men, which is polarizing, I guess, is the word that I've used on this show, but I am someone who has found a lot to love in it. I bought it monthly when it was coming out as a teenager, and it was a really wild time in the franchise. It was the three books coming out at the same time, and Grant Morrison is doing all kinds of insane Grant Morrison stuff in Grant's book. Chris Claremont is doing full chains off mask off chris claremont in the arena with the girls in the bondage gear and everything like was fully all systems go and then you were kind of dancing in the middle picking up off of the joe casey run and finding stories you could tell with the characters who hadn't been claimed by the other two books is the sense that I sort of got because Chris had taken all his favorite characters to extreme and then Grant had Cyclops and Wolverine and Jean Grey and Xavier. So it was sort of like, well, who's around? And so you had Angel, you had Nightcrawler. Those were sort of pillars you could use on the team. But then a lot of it was about you building a cast with characters who had seen less major panel time up to that point. Yeah. The character most associated with your run 
as you know a, a unique point of view character figure is nurse annie gazakanian who is ostensibly the subject of this episode but we're going to get broader than that i just think <laughs> the appeal of annie gazakanian featuring chuck austin as the title of a podcast episode was just sort of too much for me to resist but before we get into the nitty gritty, I'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story with the X-Men, your history with the franchise before you were writing on the franchise. And then we'll talk about your path to becoming the writer on Uncanny X-Men, which is a big deal. Okay. So you just want to know how I got interested as a kid and then how Yeah. I got yeah. And then we'll get into Miracle Man and all that. And <laughs> <laughs> Oh, wow. We are going to go broad. Okay broad strokes but i think people should know because a lot of the, the thing about x-men fans is a lot of the time x-men is what they read and they don't know yeah. other things as well so i like to help contextualize artists and writers for people sounds good and you're both so that's an interesting thing that's not always the case yeah i'm very adhd i'm all over the map <laughs> uh, i had a bunch of the i don't know where i got them uh, i had a, a bunch of comics that people had given to me just when i was a kid i had some of the neil adams comics from when i was younger and i always enjoyed those but i really got into it with giant size x-men number one i bought it at the 7-eleven across the street from my school and sat on the grass reading it that as, literally as soon as i bought it and i was just hooked so i got into that early claremont mm -hmm. dave cockrum run i had been a dave cockrum fan without knowing it at the time on the his legion of superhero stuff so it was really natural for me to sort of gravitate into what he was doing with that x-men stuff yeah i really enjoyed it but when john byrne came on everything kind of took off for me in a way that was sort of awe-inspiring and um, i really really enjoyed that run a lot uh, over time you know i got older and i lost interest and i got out of the x-men i got into other things and a lot of my comics reading became a lot more uh, independent and and offbeat and I got out of comics almost entirely and, and started working professionally as first a computer games animator and then a, a, an animator in Los Angeles for various TV shows. I started on King of the Hill and wound up working on uh, uh, all kinds of shows. I don't know. You don't want my resume. It's way too long. But hit IMDb because you might be surprised. He's worked on like a million things that you've heard of. Yeah. He's a very yeah. successful guy. Yeah, I've done I've done well for myself. I have to say, I've been able to pay the bills, which is good. In the arts, I mean, that's an achievement for sure. It is. An, it is a huge achievement. It's down here. I get um, the bit, first question that people ask me when their kids come in for mentor information because I have classes and stuff that I teach sometimes is, will my child be able to make a living? <laughs> and so that's the <laughs> that's the number one question. And yes, you actually can make a living working as an animator i was never able to really make a living as a comic book person although i had a couple of good years when i was writing the x-men but i guess let's if we're going to get back to the next part of the x-men skip ahead many years i'm married um have uh three kids and um i'm working at king of the hill actually and they're going on a particularly long hiatus because they're not sure if they're going to pick it up again i think this was between the fourth and the fifth seasons maybe while i was finishing off and i was interviewing at other places looking for work which was it was tough because you know, King of the Hill was a non-union shop and every place else in town was union. So right. you had to find a place that was willing to get you in and sponsor you in the union to to get a job. So at the same time, I was looking for work anywhere and I sent stuff. I sent a short war machine thing to Joe Casada, which he loved, wound up buying it as a series. And then while I was working on that and Electra. He brought you on for the Bendis Electra run. Yeah. 
yeah, brought me on for the early first parts of that. As the artist, to be clear to people. So you you yeah. came into comics initially as an artist. You were one of the artists. I just, for the context that I mentioned briefly earlier, Alan Moore tapped you to draw some of Miracle Man, which is yes. a huge pillar of comics history. And then I actually just, as a random thing i'm a big phantom lady fan oh yeah <laughs> so <laughs> i just am like my dream you know i have some comics writing aspirations myself and i would love someday to do like a phantom lady revival for dc i think she's such a fun character and you co-created the d tyler version in the 80s who i quite like I, I thought she was fun she met quite an ignominious end in infinite crisis but you know oh did she yeah she got skewered right through the chest by deathstroke and i was like that's a little gratuitous um... but but yeah. you know what? It's been like six continuity reboots since then. So I'm sure we could figure something out. But no, I've always liked Phantom Lady. So thank you for uh, bringing her back in the 80s because she's such oh. a fun Golden Age character. But yes, yeah, so you were on Elektra and then the War Machine series was part of the new, the Marvel Max imprint. Part of the Marvel Max line. It was a week, weekly black and white comic that we were doing. And... Uh, that was where I was first working on uh, sort of that hybrid CG drawn over style that we were using for a while. But people were really digging the writing and the, the writing was going through the X-Men offices. So when Joe Casey decided to leave uh, X-Men, they asked if I would be interested in taking over the third book and uh, because they just really liked War Machine. And that was such, like, I've talked about the Joe Casey run a lot on this show because I think it's very underrated. Yeah. It's brief, but he was doing a lot of interesting, weird stuff in concert with what Morrison was doing in New X-Men to sort of broaden the notion of mutant culture. Yeah. Uh, so you had them participating in pop culture more. The Stacey X character obviously yeah. brings a very new angle to uh, mutant relations, literally speaking, but also the way that mutants were being commodified, the idea of them being sexually fetishized, which makes a ton of sense because that's something that happens to minorities all the time. And yeah. you inherited the story right in the middle of the Holy War story the the church of humanity stuff yeah. that he had set up were you left with like notes on where because it goes in a very different direction once you take the story over yeah uh i was not left with any notes and i didn't really know where joe intended to take it uh, i really liked a lot of the concepts and the characters but marvel felt that that was going in too dark a direction it was getting very dark yeah yeah they actually wanted to pull back from that and that's they wanted to get back to the what they considered to be the the the, the heart of the franchise which was you know uh, emotions characters relationships soap opera fun high-flying adventure kind of yeah. stuff yeah yeah and uh, so uh, I was asked to sort of wrap up those storylines and I wanted to keep Stacey X just as like a little bit of sort of like the the, the darkness. I and mean, I liked her as mm -hmm. a character. It's always great to have that character that everybody hates. Well, you write that great monologue for her. I, I mean, I was in that episode. I was like, man, the second Joe's off the book, all the characters hate Stacey and it's a bummer. But then I got to uh, the you wrote that monologue for one of the Kiyosamiya issues where right. they go to the ruins of the brothel and she has she finds the the photos and stuff of the girls who died and she has this you get give her a lot of pathos in this monologue and i was like ah oh, you know i actually wish that chuck had written stacy longer you gave her that jump rope exit which at least is an iconic scene <laughs> in the history of the x-men 
Were you told to basically get rid of that character? Was she not well-loved by editorial? She was part of that darker tone. She was not well-loved, and uh, but mostly, it you know, she's she was a prostitute. So yeah. it, just the idea of sort of overt, uh, using your, your ex-powers for your overt sexuality just made everybody a little uncomfortable, so they, they wanted to see her go. I did get permission to bring her back, but I never got around to being able to bring her back. She was going to go through a, I mean, I don't know if you heard this. I talked to Chad about this, I think. I didn't listen. Chad Anderson from Gray Malkin Lane, by the way, connected us and Chuck did an interview for them. But I haven't listened yet because I didn't want it to like infect oh, my see. interview process. But I will listen after I speak to you because I'm sure that okay. you guys, Chad's great. And I'm sure you guys got into a lot of interesting stuff. Oh yeah, he's great. So you had a plan to bring her back. Yeah, there were there was the whole thing about secondary mutations at that point, mm-hmm. and she was doing. We were seeing the whole thing with her getting sort of like a lizard skin, more snaky stuff going on. Yeah, yeah. I had a storyline that I was leading to with um, with Mister Sinister, where at one point I was talking to the editors and and they told me just because you know it was like who's left over that I can use as villains and right <laughs> they had Mister Sinister nobody was using at that point and I said well who's he supposed to be and they said well he's the um, Mengala of the of the Xverse, yeah, and I went, "Wow, you know who Mengele was, right?" And yeah, like, and you you're saying that like sex work is too dark, but we're, we're going to go to a place of Mengele, yeah. Right. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, we had a conversation about it. And I said, "Look, I, I, man, I got a, I just have a great story. I would love to be able to do with that." Uh, the idea was being that this guy starts up camps and starts seeing what he can do to trigger the secondary mm-hmm. um, mutations, uh, why there are so many different permutations and why there are multiples of some of the permutations. And it was leading into an even bigger story arc that I had in mind. Um, but uh, based on some Stephen Gould uh, evolution stuff called punctuated equilibrium. It's, I know this is getting really complex. And- I get what you're saying, which is like the dominant species stuff you were doing, right. the stuff that you did in the Draco, the idea that there were sort of strains, specific strains of mutation that recurred yeah. throughout generations. And so was she going to be part of like a reptilian? Yes. Yeah. Gotcha. And so so they when they encountered her, uh, they were all going to get captured and be put in this camp that Sinister was experimenting on people. Some of these ideas, by the way, I think were used in Frank Thierry's well, Weapon X, or at least I'm not <laughs> I'm not saying Frank took the idea. I'm just saying. No, no, that... no, no, no. Frank, uh, Frank's ideas were entirely his own and all. all yeah, original. but I think but... that some of the some of this conversation clearly because the camp situation did end up happening over there. Yeah, but that that actually happened not long after the conversation that I had. So it's not that I, okay, I want to make sure I'm very clear. I don't think anybody ran with my ideas. No, no. But those themes didn't end up happening in a different book. Those themes did end up happening, but they were actually happening while I was working on my direction. Yeah. Just convert, talk about conversion to evolution. This is very, well, it's also, it's days of future past. It's also Bishop's story. It's like, it's, if you're going to use the mutants as a metaphor for minority groups, and often they were used specifically as a metaphor for Jewish people, the idea of the concentration camp story makes a lot of sense. I tend to think that they pushed too far with the Mengele stuff with Sinister. And in my episode of Mr. Sinister that I did with Kieran Gillen, we talked about how Kieran really reinvented that character as a more 
camp and silly figure because that's a way of pulling back from making oh, it yeah. too, too, too dark. Like if he's ridiculous, then the fact that he's a eugenicist is less dark because the point is that yeah. eugenics is stupid. So like this, you know, <laughs> like so, <laughs> so then it can become comedy because it's like, this guy's ridiculous. Yeah. And I think that was a good approach, but you might be happy to learn that Stacey X is thriving on Krakoa in the New Mutant Homeland. She Great. has set up a combinations sort of brothel slash social counseling service slash orphanage. Oh, wow. She takes care of mutant children who were abandoned. And then she also is like kind of a, a therapist. She's having a great time on Krakoa. And she and Nightcrawler have been hooking up. So oh, uh, interesting. it all did come around for her. It just took about 20 years. <laughs> okay. Wow. God, yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah, and that was just a funny, but it was Cy Spurrier who I think, you know, a lot of your um, early stuff, like you are somewhat more adjacent to the British comic scene that I think does do a lot of that edgy yeah. stuff. And Cy Spurrier is definitely one of those creators. And I don't know him personally, but I imagine you hand Cy Spurrier a list of like, here's the X-Men characters that no one's using right now that he was <laughs> like, ooh, Stacy X, let's do something there, right? Yeah. The other characters that you did a lot of focus on before we get into Nurse Annie, uh, in terms of existing characters, you brought North Star to the team, which was a big deal. Was that something that was talked about editorially or was that something you pitched? No, it was actually an idea of theirs. They had um, uh, they had characters that were uh, nobody was using. Husk was one of them. Mm -hmm. They asked if I was interested in using Husk, if I wanted to use uh i can't remember who else but then north star was suggested and i said "Ooh, i want north star so yeah because you got to do the first gay x-man storyline which was a cool thing to do i remember that issue with the little boy who dies yeah i've talked about this on the show because young people reading the comics now are often a little bit like oh my god the way Ch like charles and North, like Charles doesn't want him in the gym with the students. I'm like, and you have to under, I, I tell people, you have to understand that this is the way gay teachers were being talked about at yeah. that time. And that it's a very of that moment story and, and very forward thinking for that moment when, uh, when the, the boy with the explosive power is like, oh my God, you're a fruit. Like, yeah. that's just such a, it's a panel that people pull now and they're like, this is ridiculous. I'm like, it's not ridiculous. You guys are not there. <laughs> this yeah. is exactly the kind of conversations. That, but that issue, you know, as a gay teenager reading these comics at the time, that one really resonated with me. And I appreciated that. I saw an interview with James Tinian where he was saying that the North Star falls in love with Iceman story was one that resonated with him quite a lot. So I'll tell you that. You know, I was on the internet at that time and the fan enthusiasm for Bobby and North Star was so huge that it is still to this day. I mean, we got questions about it. I'm like, that's not a question that Chuck can answer, but it's like, why has no one put them together? And it's like, well, North Star got married before Iceman came out. So, you know, there's uh -oh. only so much, like they missed each other. And that yeah. adds kind of an interesting retrospective layer to your story because in retrospect if bobby had just been able to say i'm gay too yeah they could have been happy together but bobby was all tied up in all of that were you writing bobby with the idea that he was maybe closeted himself or was that not your approach to it always felt to me like you were hinting at that in the story i was playing with the um i was considering it 
but he was a major character at the time and I didn't know if they would allow it. I do think the work you did, like there were a couple creators who pushed it. Scott Lobdell hinted at him maybe being gay in the 90s. And then you did this story with North Star and then Marjorie Liu pushed it again in a story in which Annie Gazakanian features, by the way. I believe oh. it's the only one not written by you because all of Bobby's ex-girlfriends show up for this oh, story man. when he's having like a nervous breakdown. It's like her and Opal Tanaka and like all of those. She asked and she says that she was told no because he was too major a character. And then Bendis, of course, you know, he's Brian Michael Bendis. He's at the peak of his powers at that point. And I think he asked and they said yes. But I don't think it would have necessarily been a yes if you and Marjorie Liu and Scott Lobdell hadn't all pushed it at different times. Yeah. That's a good example of how this medium as something that goes on and on and on with different writers, how even if you didn't get to go there, a later writer might. And that's exciting too, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of what we do in a lot of ways is we sort of plant seeds for other people to use in the future when you're working serialized comics that way anyway. Your other signature character was Juggernaut, but we got a lot of questions about him. So I'm yeah. going to save that for later. I'm a huge Polaris fan. Oh, and I am famous somewhat, I guess, in this fandom for being a real advocate of your Polaris, who is, <laughs> I would say, maybe a polarizing Polaris. Yeah, yeah. I see some of the criticisms. She is a little crazy in this run, but I personally think it's the most... I think the problem with Polaris has always been that people don't know what to do with her. And so in the wake of Magneto's apparent death on Genosha, radicalizing her and having her go hardline that way was a really interesting path for the character. And other writers followed up on it, but I felt like, unfortunately, it got really rolled back once Peter David had her again and just sort of was like, we're doing X Factor again. But what made you <laughs> want to... I mean, he just did. He's just, he, he, Peter David and Chris Claremont are the two where they do not care, for the most part, what other people did with their characters. You give them the character back, they're like, none of that shit happened. Don't worry about yeah. it. Yeah. But I liked... I mean, I loved that costume that Kiyosumiya designed, the purple yeah. witchy look. And, you know, the moment where she's just, I'm going to start killing people. Like, you made her the Wolverine of the group, which was really interesting because it's a role that women don't usually fill on a superhero team. I'm just interested in in your conception of that character and how that all came together for you. Well, the uh, I always jokingly blame Grant Morrison. Right, because Grant drove her crazy, right? She so drove her crazy. She walks <laughs> through the radioactive waste and but i thought it was just such a great idea i mean one of the things that uh i look for in a character is something that makes them distinctive and unique something that gives them an arc and a direction to go mm -hmm. so i like having a character who's a little messed up at the beginning and then you can kind of work with that and then in the meantime you've introduced another character who's messed up at the beginning and then you can kind of work with that through the course of the story so eventually i was going to work through some of the craziness with lorna and have her uh, still be able to hang around. But initially, I just went for it. I just I thought, I like what Grant's done. I think I'll continue on with it and just sort of take it to the next level. I, I, there's also, for me, mental health is is something that's really important to me personally for mm -hmm. you know people who have issues and need to to see somebody and speak to somebody that they should and they should find out ways to sort of take care of their mental health issues it's there's no there should be no stigma against it so i like the idea of having somebody who had gone through sort of the ultimate stress watched the, you know thousands of people killed around her and 
was affected by that and then had to kind of work her way back through that process. Uh, the same thing with Juggernaut. It's about trauma and, and working yeah, your way through the trauma. I was wondering, was it you or editorial or Grant who had the idea that, no, after all the decades of confusion about this subject, she is Magneto's daughter because it comes, it's a, it's a retcon that happens in your story, but Grant does in her madness, have her call him daddy, my father, you know, but yeah. to readers at the time, we were all very confused because we were like, but the point is that she's not his daughter. And then you have the DNA test reveal. Was that your concept or did it come from editorial or? That was my idea because at the time, if I remember correctly, nobody knew for sure if she was or she wasn't. The idea was it was a lie. And then I was just covering Age of Apocalypse. And in the Age of Apocalypse, the Dark Beast runs a DNA test and says she's not, but oh, okay. he's the Dark Beast. He has all kinds of reasons he could lie. That's easy enough to hand wave. But yes, it was always a question. It was a, what do we think? It certainly has served her well in the time since, especially after they decided that Quicksilver and the Scarlet Witch weren't his kids after all. Right. But I also think that the characterization that you gave her as someone genuinely struggling with an unstated but obvious mental health problem has become core to the character. Jerry Duggan recently did an issue with her when she was on the X-Men team. She won the fan vote to be on the first uh, year of the Krakoan X-Men team. And that was kind of fun because who yeah. knew that Polaris had that kind of cachet, but I enjoyed it a lot. Jerry has brought her a lot of new fans and I keep telling people who like Jerry's interpretation of Lorna that of all the writers who've ever had her, I think it owes the most to yours. Her spotlight issue feels very much, and I'm friends with Jerry and I have asked him about this offline. He said that he definitely was thinking about this, but her spotlight issue is framed sort of as a bipolar cycle like she's manic at the beginning of it and then she kind of crashes and by the end of it she's kind of ashamed of her behavior but she's still a superhero and you still have to get out of bed and all of that yeah i think that that's an interesting thing to do with a character and so much as the magneto wedding dress has been an iconic image of wow x-men soap opera sometimes gets real crazy i do think that in the long run that character has become sort of representationally important to a lot of people because a lot of comics fans, I mean, I am on like four psychiatric medications, so far be it from me to judge Lorna for having a bit of a <laughs> moment. But I also am very specifically moved by the the flashback that she wrote in Genosha when she witnesses the one that Annie actually sees because Charles links them all and, and it's how Annie and Lorna come to kind of an understanding because there's something to me very poetic to go back to the Days of Future Past thing and the Kitty Pride thing and the allegory to having Lorna find out that she's Jewish via DNA test, go to talk to her father about, oh, you're my dad, and then experience the great mutant holocaust all around her and be one of the only survivors, much as her father was one of the only survivors where so many had died. To me, that parallel is very appealing, and it's something that if I ever got a chance to write the character, I would really want to dig into. 
But the theme of genocide is something that you explored a lot. And one of the ways you did that was, and we're only a half an hour into recording, <laughs> through the character of Nurse Annie Gazakanian, who, for people who are not familiar, who have not read the run, is a human nurse of Armenian descent, Gazakanian. The Ian ending, like Kardashian, for people who are yeah. not familiar, is a common way to spot an Armenian name. The Armenian Genocide is a subject that is not widely discussed at the same level as similar atrocities like the Holocaust, in part because the Turkish government denies that it ever happened. Yep. Whatever one might feel about the Kardashians, I actually do think that they've brought a great deal of awareness to it. There are all kinds of Gen Z and millennial women and gays, like everybody who watched the Kardashians were like, oh, the Armenian genocide was horrible. And I know all the facts <laughs> about it because Kim Kardashian told me, uh, which, you know, uh, I think that if if you can do something positive for the culture at the same time that you're doing things people might criticize you for, then that's great. Um, but uh, so she's Armenian. She's a nurse. She is not a mutant. She is placed in charge of a coma patient, John Doe, who readers will recognize as Alex Summers. Alex had been in the Mutant X alternate universe and presumed dead for some years previous to this. And he is sort of a catatonic patient with no recognition, but he's handsome and she's his nurse. And in her dreams, she starts to have this strange romance with him that she doesn't know how to feel about. This is being facilitated by her son, Carter, who is a telepathic child, is a mutant, and Annie has a prejudice against mutants because Carter's father was abusive with her and she had to flee with the kid. So she doesn't like mutants very much. Is that the, I think I just summarized the whole gist. So when the X-Men recognize Alex or photo of Alex as this patient who's a mysterious John Doe, they go and get him and she insists on coming with him to Xavier's and bringing her son, who is this young, untrained, telepathic mutant. And we also get weird hints, creepy hints that some other force out there is communicating with Carter and influencing him in some way. So that's the setting. And Nurse Annie then becomes our viewpoint character into the mansion because she doesn't know much about mutants besides what she gathered from her abusive ex-husband or boyfriend. And she has to learn to set aside her own prejudices and, and all of that. What made you conceive of this character and what was sort of your thought process with her? Editorial wanted to bring Havoc back. And I had always loved him from those Neil Adams comics that I told you about. Mm -hmm. the, the costume was just fantastic and so easy to draw. Well, back in the day, it was that matte black always with yeah. like no shading. And then the white circles would point at the viewer no matter what, which is such yeah. a cool effect that we've lost a little bit with the modern coloring, but it still looks great. Yeah. Yeah. But he used to look like a black hole on the page. And it was really yeah. like in those Neil Adams comics. It's so arresting visually. Yeah. Yeah. You feel like he's always pulsing a little bit with energy because mm -hmm. that circle that you're talking about that always faces the viewer. Yeah. I was glad to bring him back, but obviously you sort of have to bring him back in continuity. You can't just have him show up at the door like Sherlock Holmes. So, right. <laughs> so we came up with this idea that he was in this um, 
he had crashed in the plane and had been found alive, but you know, catatonic and didn't know who he was. Nobody knew who he was. So he, I thought, well, what if he winds up in the care of, of somebody who winds up coming to the to the um, the mansion? And then Ed, you use the word exactly viewpoint character. Uh, that's what I wanted was somebody who could her and Sammy were intended to be the two viewpoint characters to sort of get people into the various different parts of the mansion so that uh, I could introduce new readers. Right. Squid boy, Sammy Perret was like sort of your yeah. Jubilee or Kitty Pride character. Who's the student yeah. who we see things through and right. see juggernauts arc specifically through because they developed the Wolverine type bond. Very specifically. Yeah. Um, yeah. That was, uh, that was all intended from the beginning. So, um, but Annie, uh, but then she sort of evolved a little bit. Um, I think Mike Martz actually might've suggested that, well, maybe her son is a mutant. And so she, that, you know, she has a reason for wanting to go besides just Alex. And mm -hmm. so and some of these things were parts of conversations. There's a, a lot of that sort of back and forth uh, with the editors that I, I love. I love talking about, well, what do you think we should do? Where should we go? Like, like with Husk, I would ask, you know, well, what happens to those skins when she sheds them off? And that's there what was bothers me about Husk. <laughs> I have I have a whole Husk skeeves the hell out of me. Now you got to watch Chad's podcast because I talk about a story that I had in mind about what happens to those skins. What were you going to do with them? <laughs> they just exist like a snake skin. And uh... there's a guy who follows her around collecting them. No. So that so that happens. Jason Aaron did that what? in Wolverine in the Oh, no, Really? So, yeah. So Toad falls in love with her in Wolverine in the X-Men and he ends up he collects like a full husk skin and like has tea parties with it and it's very oh, upsetting oh that is very disturbing yeah yeah I, that's probably even more disturbing than i was gonna go but that's pretty good i have to say it, it's it's pretty um, horrible yeah but then they actually start dating which is crazy uh, that is but uh, it's, uh... yeah you don't get me <laughs> don't get me started on stalkers dating their their yeah not not my favorite i mean i as a, a big warren fan He's not the most beloved character in the franchise, but I've always had a big soft spot for him. In part because the John Byrne drawings of him in Dark Phoenix Saga, I believe, turned me gay. Uh, I mean, I realize that it's not actually how it works, but... I'm glad you know that's not how it works. I know I it's would, not how it works, I to, but... I would have to defer to you, though, on that. I mean, I, it's certainly, let's say, it, it was the moment at which I went, uh-oh, Something's uh -huh. going on here because I'm seven or eight. My dad's an X-Men collector. So I grew nice. up reading the 70s and 80s stuff instead of the yeah. 90s stuff that was coming out when I was a kid. I'm, I'm okay. turning 35 this week for context. But when they're on, in New Mexico at, at the Angel's Eerie to come ask him and Candy Southern about the Hellfire Club and he floats down with his wings. And he's in the tank top with the headband and he's got the chest hair spilling out. And I was like, uh-oh, what's going on in my brain right now? So I have a soft spot for Warren. I really loved him with Candy. And then he, after Candy died, he ended up with Betsy Braddock, who was my favorite X-Man character as a kid. Uh, I wasn't as crazy about the ninja evolution, but I loved her in the in the 80s stuff. And so I'm very happy now. She's back to herself. Ninja Psylocke's her own character, who is also cool. And Betsy is Captain Britain now, which is a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And she's uh, dating Rachel Summers. So we've come a long way in the, wow. the yeah, queer representation so. in these comics. <laughs> It's fun to just catch you up a little bit on these things and have you go, wow. Thank you. The X-Men comics are really good right now. I gotta, I gotta say, if you, if you want to dip back in at all at any point, but so Warren and Husk, how did that happen? Because 
I would say the most, apart from the Draco, which we will get to, I would say that the most controversial aspect of your run was the Angel and Husk relationship. What was your thought process with those characters? It was something that actually developed kind of unexpectedly. Um, I It was not ever intended. In fact, I think I told you Husk was not my idea to bring her in at all. Right. But in the middle of the dominant species storyline, um, I started because originally where the dominant species storyline was supposed to go was that all of these iterations like angels start to appear and then uh, Wolverine start to appear and uh, Cyclopses start to appear. And those people start to sort of gather together in groups and you start to see what evolution tends to be. What Stephen Gould talks about with punctuated equilibrium is that you the dominant species is the one that wins out. And then there's a period of stasis and then yeah. there's another, this is not a biology podcast, but that's, no. I, I, I've done my reading on that theory a little yeah. bit. Yeah, so it's, it just spits out variations and then from the variations, something becomes the dominant species that winds up becoming the next thing. So there, there's belief, it's believed that there are, were probably hundreds of different humanoid versions that came out, but only like three major ones that we know of, because those are the ones that happened to succeed for a period. Right. Of time. You got Homo erectus, you got the Neanderthals, you've got a couple that made it yeah. work and then either had to come to blows or intermarry or figure out right. what to do. And that's where I was going with the X-Men. I was going to have the big, all of the various different versions battling with each other to see who is supposed to be the dominant species. And then we went up with Xavier's point of view that we all have to coexist, that we are all part of the same species. So, so was there going to be like a husk tribe of people who husk? Because that's horrible. There were going to be a tribe of husk <laughs> people, yeah. I don't like that at all. There, yeah. Imagine their security deposit. Like the, the expansion for husk people, it would just be... Oh, it'd be awful. Yeah, but if you run things, then you have a business of people that come to dispose of the husks after you've shed them. I so. suppose that's true. And I mean, you know, it would be an ethical way. Now I'm getting too dark, but I'm thinking about now I'm thinking about like it's a great solve for PETA because now you have an ethical leather industry. There you go. But yeah, let's not go too far down that road. But see, that's the fun thing about X-Men is that you can have those thought experiments all day long. And sometimes you get to write about it. I get to that's write about That's what this, it. oh, <laughs> my good sir, that's what this show is. It's I go, I just go on tangents for three hours and people seem to like it. Um, but uh, so once you were writing Dominant Species, they did seem to have a certain chemistry. Yes. And so that's when that came together. And Psylocke had just died. So he was in a very fraught emotional state to begin with. I had liked the sort of flirtation that had been building between him and Stacey X in the Casey run, but yeah. that was going to come back though. When she came back, when she came back. Yeah. yeah. Well, so for anybody listening, just to be clear, I officially retract any statements I've ever made where I said that Chuck Austin wrote out Stacey X because clearly she would have hung out longer if Chuck had his way. That's yeah. This is the thing is you get so many ideas. There's just not enough time. Oh, of course. Once Husk and Angel were together, though, where did uh, fucking in the sky in front of her mom come from? Because that's probably the thing <laughs> I get asked about the most with that run. Uh, I know. And it's funny I, that, that 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 sticks with people. But I guess that just shows <laughs> that uh, nobody's <laughs> ever done anything sexually stupid in their lives. You know, whereas I have done stupid things. Certainly when I was 18 or 19, I think Husk is said to be in that story, if a billionaire who looked like Warren Worthington wanted to fly me off into the sky, I think I would have gone with it. 
And I think that's what she does. She's a young yeah, girl. She's impulsive. Yeah. I think that it would be funny. We haven't seen those characters interact a ton in the years since. And I do think it would be funny to just have them now that she, I mean, she's, she's got a PhD now. Like she's an adult, like, like, cause the characters age slowly, but she's fully now yeah. like, you know, in her mid twenties, it would be very funny. I think to have them revisit that at some point, just, you know, for him to be like, I hope you don't feel like I, t and she's like, no, no, no. I was an adult. I was just a very stupid adult. Yeah. Know? I mean, and that's really, and she's always the one pushing him in that story. Like it's yeah. okay for us to be together. I am a college student. I'm not a child, you know? Yeah. And there were going to be originally, if I'd say there were going to be consequences, the husk, uh, the, the husk collector storyline, was going to bring Sam back into the picture. There was going mm. to be conflict between him and Warren while they were trying to find Husk. So uh, that that was, the, there was all, I mean, it's all stuff that, believe me, it's not that I didn't think about these things. Of course, <laughs> right. But it's like, we only have the comic that's printed, right? Yes, you know, oh, so. I, and I get it. I totally get it. I mean, it's like having, it's like you got the canceled run. So now you have to figure out, well, what would have happened? If what they, would have happened uh, if you hadn't been pulled off it? Oh, I, I wasn't pulled off. I quit. Okay. That was my next question is because, so uh, when the reload all happens, you're on it for a little bit. Yeah. Because Chris was taking Uncanny back over and then you leave and are replaced with Peter Milligan. What compelled you to leave? Really, they had just signed a deal with with Walmart to get the books in there, and Walmart had a lot of restrictions for what they could put content-wise into the comics. Interesting. It basically negated all of the future stories that I had coming up. So I had to I it meant that I was going to have to rethink a lot of the things that I had planned to do. And there were things that I thought like the, the the last issue that I wrote, I think, was a scene where Sammy is walking. I can't remember the second angel boy. Uh, uh, Josh Icarus. Josh. He's walking Josh Icarus through the through the 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 mansion and showing him like this is where this is and this is where this is. And then they go through uh, uh, Aurora's, you know, giant recreation of her African storm forest. And mm -hmm. um, I had written the, the scene as sh that she was nude in there, you know, like in the old days. Yeah, like in the old days. And they told me I couldn't do it. And I thought, but. But Chris Claremont did that in 1975. Like that's, yeah. yeah. And that was my response. And they said, yeah, we can't do that anymore. And I thought, wow, I'm, I just don't think I can, I can't write like beyond 1975. Right. <laughs> Cause then I started, it just started, made me start to realize that, that the direction that they were going, it was not going to be an easy thing for me. And, uh, and I had, there was a lot of work that was coming up at, in animation at that point. Mm -hmm. So it just was a nice natural place to take a break. So I, I broke out. That makes sense. But then you did end up on Avengers for a little bit, or was that concurrent? That was be a little before I left because gotcha. uh, my, my, my run ended on the Avengers before I left. So my one question Avengers wise, because this is not an Avengers podcast, is just <laughs> about Kelsey Lee your Captain Britain, and mostly just why did you make Brian and Megan so mean? What was that all about with that? <laughs> they trick her with that test and then she could never see her kids again. It felt oh. rough as, as a Brian and Megan fan. I was like, why would they do that? Um, I wanted to show that, 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 because originally in that original Captain Britain story, you get the choice. Right. Of the amulet or the sword. And I wanted to show that that it's like it's often like life it's you you choose one path or the other and it's not that one is wrong or the other or the and the other is better that they're just sometimes just different so she chooses the sword 
and that alternates that alters the direction of the powers and where she's able to go and it means that she has to be separated from her children uh, because she chooses the path of the warrior so i would and that would the idea was that she was going to have to work her way through the warrior process to get back to her to children. get her kids back and yeah right. I mean, because all, all, so much of what I was, everything that I do, at, and it's one of the reasons why I realized in some ways I'm not the best suited for comics. I'm more suited for television or or long form storytelling is I always think in terms of what the sort of the arc is for the character and what they have to go through. Like, so you give them, you give them weaknesses and difficulties up front, and then they have to kind of work through those and power through their, to their, to find their inner strengths to get what they need most in the world or they, uh, rather than even what they want. Like you may want power, superpowers in the moment, but what you really need is your children back. That winds up having to be her her arc. But, you know, then you don't get to finish the arc. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you might be happy to know that Chris Claremont actually, as it happens, picked her up when he did oh, nice. Excalibur and he used her. She fell under the sway of an evil Captain Britain and became a bad guy for a minute. And then it all resolves in the end. And she did get her kids back. So Good. the arc did resolve. Nice. I get what you're saying, which is this is a, a, a thing that a lot of creatives, when they come on, have stressed is that when you don't own the characters and you don't know how long you're going to be on yeah. the book, you never know if you're going to get to finish out an arc. Ben Percy, who's currently writing Wolverine and X-Force, he's a novelist. Yeah. He is a very long-term planner and he has luckily, and when he was on the show, he was very grateful for this because those books have been selling really well. He's now almost up to issue, you know, 50 of this run, and he's been able awesome. to plant seeds early on. And, and and it's been funny because monthly comics fans are not enormously patient, yeah, right? But when you look back in 20 years and it's all going to be collected in a hardcover or a trade paperback, it's going to read like a novel yeah. in a, that form, Stories disappear for a while, then they come back. Chris Claremont was also able to do that because he wrote the book for 16 years, but that's not yeah. really, even by the time you were writing, that wasn't really how comics worked anymore. Yeah. The Walmart restrictions are an interesting thing because you were writing in that very, like this is something that people also don't get when they're like, wow, the comics are very like sexual at this time or very charged is that it's that specific window between we're no longer following the comics code and then Disney's buying the company in 2009 and then Disney yeah. had their own content requirements. Yeah. It's a very peculiar little time in big two comics that I think is interesting. And I think for many people, you kind of are the the face of that moment in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Well, we were trying to figure it out. And I know that you've caught a lot of shit about it, but I do think that in retrospect, there's much more to like than there is to object to. In my opinion, my one I have two sticking points, sir, that I am going to just sort of... So one is the Juggernaut is gay. No, I never heard that before. Juggernaut is gay? He and Black Tom are like definitely oh, a couple. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, Chad and I, and I talked about that a lot. Yeah. So that there's a question about that that we'll get to. But the other thing is the Draco. So the Nightcrawler's parentage question. This is probably the thing that gets talked about most with this run. Were you aware at all of Chris Claremont's intention that Nightcrawler was the child of Mystique and Destiny? I was not at the time. And I don't know that anybody there was because nobody told me not to do it. In fact, yeah, no, I was not aware. And that's the thing. It was, there's so much continuity. I, I bought so many comics to try of to make course, sure. Of course, right. No, it's hard to keep track of all of it. There's so much of it, yeah. Apart from that, which is just that Claremont was never allowed to do that because saying that these two women 
I mean, one of them's a shapeshifter saying that they were able yeah. to have a biological child. Together. He wasn't even allowed to say that they were lovers. Right. Yeah. You know, it was a different and it's a different time now where Destiny's been brought back from the dead on Krakoa because Krakoa can resurrect people and they're married and on page and referring to each other as my wife and whatnot. But Nightcrawler, so far, they haven't retconned that. To get, I, I don't know what might happen, but Azazel has not appeared a great deal since the initial story. What was your conception there? Because I think my, at the time when I was reading it, I think my objection to it was the thing with Nightcrawler, right, is that he looks like the devil, but he's not, and that it's irrational bigotry that makes people treat yes. him this way. And then you revealed that actually his father is the biblical devil. <laughs> Well, well, let's let's or at least a mutant who claims that he inspired the biblical devil, right? Yes, he is a mutant who claims he inspired the biblical devil. That's exactly what he is, and and it was a, all a part of that long-term dominant species idea mm -hmm. that this has happened, like with punctuated equilibrium that we were talking about before. And sorry to get back into the science, but that it happened once before, and that's the Book of Enoch, sure, where they talk about giants and angels and that in some cases that's where uh some of the stories of the devil begin or if you want to go back to the stories of of the satan who tempted job hasatan in job the adversary Hasatan. right yeah. yeah that those were that that was all a part of that early time and that he that uh that it got mythologized over time. It got time. mythologized over time, exactly. And that he had been just banished into another dimension, but he wanted to come back because he wanted he wanted this dimension back. Mm -hmm. He doesn't like the dimension that he's living in. That and so this was all a part of his his sort of orchestrated plan. But he is uh he is a mutant. He is not the devil. He's not a demon, to no. be clear. Right. I mean, that's Marvel owns and they can do whatever they want. Well, right. They, I mean, I think, yeah, but in your conception, the idea was while Marvel has demons in its cosmology, this guy is a human mutant who looks like a demon who leaned into that and created the mythical idea of Satan to some extent. Yes. Well, that makes sense. To me, it's just been it's just a tricky thing now because you do have to kind of explain all that. And a lot of people are just sort of like, oh, and it turned it's the story where it turns out Nightcrawler's dad is the devil. I think that your punctuated equilibrium idea is interesting. It's not quite how I conceive of the, the X gene, but the thing about the X gene is it's not good science, right? So like none of it is actual <laughs> yeah. science. So it's, it's your interpretation of it is just as valid as mine would be. I went to one of the, uh, the highest sources that I could find. Stephen Gould is like the, he's like the top guy as far as how, how you approach uh, 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 genetics and, and evolution. So. I think now is a good time to do the Cerebra character file on Annie Gazakanian. I will take you through her not super long publication history because mostly she has been written only by my illustrious guest today. I will catch you up on her whole story and then we will come back for more with Chuck. A lot of you wrote in with great questions that will probe more into the run as it played out. And many of you wrote in and I, this I really appreciate. The listeners of this podcast are a really nice bunch of people. And I said when I first announced that Chuck Austin was coming on this podcast, it was like, and people have been mean to Chuck Austin about X-Men for like 20 years. So send in. <laughs> and a lot of people have sent in very nice comments about how much your run was meaningful for them and et cetera. So I think you'll like them. Stay tuned and we'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. And now, 
Miss Candy Southern, and me, your host, with a message from our sponsors. Long time no see, beautiful boys and groovy gals. The summer's just beginning, and I, for one... <laughs> oh my, that one was a whopper. What's the matter, Candy? Sorry, Connor, old sport. My allergies are just the pits this year. I'm afraid any ad for me is going to sound like it was recorded underwater. Have you tried Astapro over-the-counter nasal spray? It's the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray and starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray, delivering full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. I've had terrible allergies this year, which is a bummer when you record a podcast for a living, but Astapro has kept me sounding crystal clear. It's got your back and your nose. And thank heavens for that. If you've got allergies like me and Candy, get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O Allergy.com X-Men, X-Men. Nurse Annie Gazakanian is the signature point-of-view character of the Chuck Austin run on Uncanny X-Men. Created by Austin and Ron Garney, Annie's a single mother of Armenian descent who's prejudiced against mutants due to past trauma, but becomes the school nurse at Xavier's to help her mutant son Carter, and also to follow her comatose patient, Alex Summers, with whom she's unexpectedly fallen in love. Annie makes her debut in 2002's Uncanny X-Men 411, Austin's first issue on the title. A nurse at the Rosie Manor Convalescent Hospital upstate, she's been tasked with caring for wards of the state who don't have identifiable families. Her favorite patient is a catatonic John Doe, a handsome blonde with a scar over his eye who's completely unresponsive. The other nurses gossip about her inappropriate interest in him, but deem it ultimately harmless. While reading to her young son Carter from the newspaper, Annie is shocked to discover an article identifying her John Doe as the missing mutant hero Alex Summers, a.k.a. Havoc. She calls the Xavier Institute to inform them Alex, who had been presumed dead, is alive, and his brother Scott comes to retrieve him. Scott overhears Annie's romantic goodbye to Alex, which embarrasses her, and he explains that before his disappearance, Alex was in a relationship. Annie insists that even if there's no place for her in Alex's life as a romantic interest, she wants to come with him and continue to care for him medically. Upon her arrival at Xavier's with Alex and Carter, Annie explains to the reader in an inner monologue that she does not like mutants, but she quickly proves essential in helping the field team recover from injuries sustained in battle with Black Tom Cassidy. It turns out she worked in the emergency room before taking the job at the nursing home. Though she refuses to let Xavier enter her mind telepathically, he's impressed enough with Annie to offer her a job as the school nurse. Annie is surprised, as she has obvious prejudices and wonders if Xavier wouldn't prefer a mutant nurse. But Xavier appeals to her decency by comparing the plight of mutants to how Armenians suffered under Turkish rule in the Armenian Genocide. Annie accepts the position and attempts to make amends with the mutants she has already offended. But the reader soon discovers her secret. Part of her struggle accepting mutants is because her son Carter is himself a mutant, already a powerful telekinetic and telepath at only six years of age. While she quickly bonds with new recruit North Star, Jean-Paul Bobier, Annie immediately clashes with Bobby Drake, a.k.a. Iceman. She and North Star bond over his crush on Bobby, which, given that Bobby is ostensibly straight, he compares to Annie's impossible love for Alex. While Annie and Bobby don't get along, she promises Bobby she will keep his own developing secret, a new secondary mutation that appears to be steadily turning his body to ice on a permanent basis. The mansion soon rocked by the arrival of Lorna Dane, a.k.a. Polaris, Havoc's girlfriend who has recently suffered a psychotic break after surviving the genocide on Genosha. 
Carter comes to discuss the matter with Annie while she's taking care of Alex in the infirmary and then uses his telepathy to try to wake Alex up over Annie's strenuous objections. While she's shaking Alex in an attempt to pull Carter back from his psychic exploration, Lorna arrives in a spooky new villainous costume and threatens Annie by magnetically tormenting her with scalpels. Xavier is able to make Lorna back down, and to everyone's shock, Alex does wake up. Immediately frantic, Alex explains that Carter is still lost in the void after rescuing him. Charles projects his own mind out to bring Carter back, which delights Annie, but she's stunned and upset when Charles, upon his own return, insists he and Annie must have a conversation about Carter's father. Before they can have that chat, Lorna shocks everyone by proposing marriage to Alex. While Alex hesitates and doesn't answer, the other X-Men assume he will say yes and begin congratulating the couple on their engagement. Annie is devastated, but Alex comes to her in the infirmary and explains that while he doesn't remember his time spent catatonic, he does feel like he knows Annie somehow. He and Lorna then leave the mansion for a vacation to get reacquainted. When the governor of New York orders Xavier's students removed from the Institute, the Canadian superheroes Alpha Flight show up to enforce the order. Despite her lack of superpowers, Annie fights back when they try to take Carter. Luckily, Xavier is able to shut the situation down by threatening to reveal the governor's dirty secrets. After this, Annie continues to serve in the background as a supporting character and sounding board through the Holy War storyline. With Alex and Lorna's wedding rapidly approaching, Annie finds herself miserable at Lorna's bachelorette party the night before. She's comforted by Bobby, who, much like Northstar, relates to Annie's struggle. Bobby has feelings for Lorna that she's never properly returned. Bobby is shocked when Annie mentions Northstar is gay, and his uncomfortable reaction infuriates Annie. She castigates Bobby as a homophobe and a self-hating racist, afraid of becoming a visible mutant because he's turning to ice, and thinking himself better than those who can't hide their mutation. Bobby chases her as she leaves the party and apologizes, and to both their surprise, they find themselves making out. I know. Hilarious. The following day, in front of all their gathered friends and family, Alex abruptly jilts Lorna at the altar, declaring his love for Annie. Annie is shocked, and Lorna is furious. She uses her magnetic control over blood to knock the guests unconscious, and transforms the cutlery into a facsimile of Magneto's costume, chasing after Alex and Annie in an attempt to kill them. Alex protects Annie and Carter, getting them to safety and explaining to Annie that over the many months they spent together, they were having the same dreams. Psychic mindscapes created by Carter, a shared experience in which Annie and Alex genuinely fell in love. Alex knows everything about Annie, including her true secret. Annie's abusive ex was a mutant, and he tried to have her killed when he found out she was pregnant. Carter, apologetic for his psychic manipulation, stresses that he just felt his mother and her mysterious patient's sadness and wanted them both to be happy. Lorna arrives to break up the happy occasion, but is defeated by the juggernaut. Alex then whisks Annie away to Paris, where they have their first kiss at the top of the Eiffel Tower, just as they once dreamed it. In the pages of Exiles, at this time also written by Chuck Austin, Alex is possessed upon his return to New York by his evil counterpart from the Mutant X reality, who had secretly become part of Alex in the complicated dimensional travel storylines from Mutant X. Evil Alex attacks Carter, furious that Carter had left him behind in the void while rescuing good Alex. The dimension-hopping mutant superheroes called the Exiles arrive to stop evil Alex, but Carter is injured. Annie and Nightcrawler take him to a nearby hospital, where Annie is disgusted by the casual bigotry the doctor there displays toward Nightcrawler. Carter and Annie are happily reunited with Alex when his mind is restored. 
During the storyline, The Draco, Xavier asks Annie to help him as he attempts to heal Lorna's fractured mind. Lorna and the Institute's mysterious new teacher, Zorn, both chastise Annie for her prejudice against mutants, but Annie decides to help anyway. She joins Xavier on his journey into Lorna's memories, and is devastated at witnessing the genocide of Genosha and experiencing Lorna's agonizing survival. Shaken by the experience upon her return to reality, Annie better understands Lorna's mental crisis, but Lorna continues to taunt her. Still, they team up together when they realize Carter has stowed away on the X-Men's jet to follow Alex on his latest mission. After Lorna helps them locate the X-Men and it's determined Carter is alright, Annie is so excited and grateful to Bobby for watching over him that she kisses Bobby on the mouth right in front of Alex. This leaves Alex a bit disquieted, and his relationship with Annie becomes strained as he's placed in charge of an X-Men squad after the teams are reorganized. Bobby begins causing trouble in their relationship as well, resenting that Alex stole not just Lorna from him, but now Annie, too. Eventually, Alex decides that he doesn't care about Annie's flirtations with Bobby and reiterates his commitment to her. Alas, Annie begins to fear for Carter's life as tensions mount between the X-Men and the new Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. She decides this life is too dangerous and makes the private decision to leave her job at Xavier's and her relationship with Alex. The one person she informs of her decision is Lorna, who's very surprised. Annie explains that Carter is the most important thing in her life, and though she knows Alex will be devastated, she can't continue to let Carter live in such dangerous circumstances. She asks Lorna to take care of Alex in his inevitable grief when he realizes Annie is gone. Annie begins driving away from the mansion, with Carter in the back seat. She tells him not to say goodbye to Alex with his telepathy, because she's afraid if she sees Alex, she won't be able to commit to her intentions. Northstar, who's realized what's happening, runs up with his super speed for a proper goodbye to his bestie. While they're bidding one another farewell, Carter declares that his best friend at the mansion, Sammy Perret the Squid Boy, has just been killed in the conflict between the X-Men and the Brotherhood. This emboldens Annie to get the hell out of Dodge straight away, and as she's driving off into the distance, she's confused when Carter begins talking about a new friend, a girl Annie assumes is imaginary. While Annie doesn't notice, it's clear to the reader that some sort of psychic entity is sitting with Carter in the back seat. This is Chuck Austin's final X-Men issue. Eight years later, in 2013, Annie makes three brief appearances in Marjorie Liu's run on Astonishing X-Men. Mystique, posing as Bobby, invites Annie, Lorna, and Bobby's other ex-girlfriend, Opal Tanaka, to come meet with him just as he's going to meet his new girlfriend, Kitty Pride. Everyone leaves disgruntled, much to Mystique's amusement. Two issues later, Bobby is driven crazy by a celestial death seed, don't worry about it, and attempts to freeze the world. In his maddened state, he kidnaps Annie and Lorna and strands them alone together in an ice cave. Awkward. They're rescued after the X-Men Thor and Opal Tanaka manage to knock some sense back into Bobby. That's the last we've seen of Nurse Annie Gazakanian, but in the new Krakoan age, her son Carter is eligible for citizenship in the mutant sovereign nation. Might they arrive in time for Annie to help care for wounded mutants amid the coming fall of X? Probably not, but it'd be fun. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. I hope you enjoyed that. I am here with iconic X-Men writer Chuck Austin, who I am so thrilled to be having a chat with today. Chuck and I have been laughing a little bit off camera. I said, if you hate any of these questions, you can just tell me to skip them. And he said, they went to the trouble of writing in, I'm going to answer. And I thought that was a really generous and lovely comment. Unfortunately, you all sent in about 400 questions for this episode. I'm exaggerating, but like not by a ton. So I've had to cut them down more than usual for this episode. So I apologize if you don't hear your question read, but a lot of you asked similar questions, and I think I'm going to cover all our bases by the end of the Q&A. 
So without further ado, because I know that you have to pick up your kid in a couple hours, so I don't want to keep you too late. I am just going to dive right in. Ashley Arabian writes, hello, Connor, an esteemed guest. I'm so excited for this episode of the most prominent Armenian in the X-Men franchise. Cerebro really made the light bulb go off for me finally that, yeah, duh, growing up with my grandfather's stories about the Armenian genocide probably contributed to my obsession with the superheroes who are constantly threatened by genocide. Annie's backstory really rings true to my experience. There's a lot of homophobia, transphobia, racism, etc. that I've seen in other Armenians thanks to yield unresolved generational trauma. It made a lot of sense to me that Annie would have been rejected by her family and community for having a son who was perceived as not fully Armenian. My dad became the black sheep of the family for marrying a non-Armenian woman, and my brother and I grew up really separated from the culture as a result. Annie's really the only time I've seen an Armenian character in a story who chooses her kid over her prejudices. That's really hit home for me, to say the least. Was Annie being Armenian a deliberate thematic choice? I'd love to know if Mr. Austin had any inspiration from experiences or observations of us Armos. Until Marvel lets me write giant Glendale Galleria-size Carter Gazakanian. Bye and thanks. Ash. My daughter's best friend was Armenian. And we used to hang out with their family a lot. We had a lot of fun. We went over, they used to cook these huge meals for us. And, um, but the two of them were best buds. So they hung out all the time. And, and in the course of talking with their parents, that's how I learned about the Armenian genocide and about not only that, but about, you know, family life and relations and huge piles of rice in the middle of the table. (laughs) Um, So yeah. A lot of fun fact places around the internet have said Chuck Austin's wife is Armenian and that's why. Yeah. We'll have to correct the record on that. The, the, the name was a combination. Their last name was Gazakanian. Okay. My uh, ex-wife's name was Anne. Gotcha. So you did, the, the relationship between Annie and Havoc, you've said, was somewhat inspired by your marriage. What did that mean? Because, I mean, I'm sure you weren't comatose when you met. No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Did I say that? It, oh, it, it, that it was inspired by you said that it, there was some inspiration there that you saw your relationship in them to some, or maybe the dynamic. I, yeah, I think a little bit. This I mean, was 20 was, years ago. I don't expect you to remember like off the cuff interviews with Wizard Magazine or whatever. Yeah. You know? um, yeah. I mean, you know, things like uh, it, it was, you know, I was a, a struggling young animator when I met my wife and she was a, she was a pretty high level producer, uh, television producer at that point. So, mm. um, it was, there was sort of a, a kind of a, almost a fantasy element to it. Like there were, I'll never forget one weekend, her, her previous husband was going to be watching the girl. She said, so you want to go to Paris for a week? And I was like, yeah, let's go to Paris for a week. So, so you're kind of the Annie in the scenario. I was, actually. I was sort of the Annie in the scenario. Yeah, definitely. That's kind of fun. That's a twist on it that I hadn't quite realized. And obviously, I think we're supposed to find Carter. People are like, this isn't very ethical nursing. And I'm like, right, that's the point, because her telepathic son interfered and made them fall in love in dreams. It's not. I don't think it's yeah. supposed to be a model for uh healthcare systems no, <laughs> no god no uh in fact i think in the first issue that she appears one of the other nurses says that's just not healthy or something yeah and you that, shouldn't be spending so much time with this patient you're fixated yeah. and it's weird and then the other nurse says look it it keeps them both comfortable and happy i i'm all for it and you know sometimes sometimes care is just caring you know and yeah as far as as far as the carter thing goes it was a way of showing something that I was going to get into later. The fact that children can feel the pain of their parents, 
he felt her isolation and loneliness from leaving her family, leaving everything else for his sake. And so he was doing this thing, not only for her, but for this comatose man to put the two of them together. It works. It's a very childlike idea of like, yeah. here's how I'll fix it. It's the parent trap, right? Like it's, it's very. Exactly. Yeah. It's the parent trap. And just like the parent trap, there is no sex involved. Just for the <laughs> people who have brought up the sort of the weird idea of that he put them together so they could have sex. That's not at all. There was no sex in the dreams. He's like an eight-year-old. It's not something that's occurring to him. Right. Yeah. That's why it was always romantic places like, you know, Paris and these. Right. You know, or like, here we are in a picnic or whatever. Yeah. Right. Like, it's yeah. all stuff that he would have seen on television. Not, exactly. You know. <laughs> but uh, in terms of the Armenian angle, one of the things I thought was really interesting about that, even reading it as a teenager, was... You know, she brings up the Armenian genocide in the comic. She clearly understands what it means to be from a threatened population, from a genocided population. But she has this deep-seated prejudice about mutants because of her experience with her ex. Yeah. I thought that was an interesting hypocrisy in the character. And my favorite scene that she gets, I think is the one Bobby has been having that problem with his powers where he's starting to, parts of him are turning to ice and he can't turn them back. Yeah. When he reveals that to her and how he's all dismayed about it, she says, you're a racist. And he's like, what are you talking about? And she's like, against your own kind. Like you don't like visible mutants because you're so afraid you're going to become one. And that that goes to show that you aren't really down like for your people because you only want to be a mutant if you can hide it. It's a real like come to Jesus moment for him that I think, you know, it's interesting. Jerry Duggan recently wrote a spotlight issue for him because he's on the X-Men team right now. And that's sort of how Jerry's been structuring that book is like each one is sort of a different character's perspective. And in that one, he talks about how he likes to be all iced up when he's doing appearances and stuff because he thinks it's important to show that for young mutants. He's also talking about being a gay role model in this story and, you know, whatever. All I could think was this is because Annie Gazakanian told him he was a homophobe and a racist and he actually <laughs> like had to think about it, you know, because it's yeah. like, oh, my God, no, wait, but I'm gay and a mutant. Yeah. Is she right? Because she's kind of right. I should probably assess like myself. So, you know, I mean, that's part of why I, it, it became a running joke on the show. And this is why eventually I just said, Chuck Austin, if you're listening, come talk about Nurse Annie's. I've become something of like a staunch Nurse Annie defender because I think that she is a very interesting character in that she is a minority. She has this prejudice. She's aware that it's an irrational prejudice, but she still feels that her feelings are valid. She works through it. And she's able to, by acknowledging her own hypocritical feelings, identify hypocrisy in other characters in a way that I think is compelling. So I've been saying we should bring her back. She should be a talk therapist or something because she really did a number on Bobby in that one exchange. I mean, then they have a very ill-advised, like, brief dating period. But Annie's choice of romantic entanglements is probably not her number one. I mean, from her ex on through it, clearly she yeah. has not great taste in men. Uh, and I'm an Alex fan, but I, I wouldn't exactly call Alex a, a great prize either dating no. wise. <laughs> no, definitely not. But yeah, no, I really, I really love that scene. 
I would think. I have to assume that that was something you were intentionally working with. Like, yeah, this is a, a character from a community that it made sense that a lot of these white mutants would not have heard about the Armenian genocide. So it makes sense as something for her to bring up as a parallel. Yeah, it was that was definitely the case. And it was uh, it came from the idea that bigotry is a learned behavior. Mm -hmm. Bobby's parents had been previously previously established in continuity to have been bigots as well as in the movies at that time, which is what we were kind of using as our North Star was the continuity of the movies. So, yeah, the idea that he would have learned that behavior even subconsciously was something that I wanted to play with a little bit. So, yeah, I mean, that's in some ways, I think that that's I guess you're telling me it's worked out in the long run, but at, in the short term, I think my stuff was a little too um, psychotherapic, I guess. I think that like, there are certain things that some people are just never going to like. There are people who yeah. just don't like the punctuated equilibrium stuff that you were doing. There are some people who just don't like the Draco and, and Azazel and all of that stuff. I totally get that. Yeah. But I would say that overall, the retrospective assessment of your run has been, well, we'll get into this in in questions after this, but there is something about how psychologically you got with it. Like, I think that Polaris's bachelorette party issue, like that's one of my favorite issues of X-Men on some level because she's so mean. And it's, you can (laughs) tell that it's because she's, in the middle of a psychotic break that she's just like blowing up everything in her life because she doesn't know how to deal with all of this. But that leads to the really beautiful, I think, scene where she and Annie commune telepathically as victims of genocide culturally and, and all of that. And that's what makes Annie understand her finally is like, oh, you experienced a genocide genocide is just something i think about constantly because of my family's history but like it happened to you that would make anybody crazy and they start to kind of get it and by the time annie leaves the book through your departure she and lorna have become almost amicable like it's sort of a thing where she's just like you know what I got to get out of here, but like, can you take care of Alex for me? Because this is not a healthy situation for me or my son, but you know, I do care about him. And Lorna's like, yeah, you know, we'll make it work. And they have kind of a a goodbye. That's not so toxic. And I, I think that's part of it is that month to month, a lot of the time your stories are just like, what, what just (laughs) happened here? But then if you look at them as a whole, I do think that you have character arcs that are relationship arcs that do make a lot of sense. And it sounds like you had a lot of plans for where to take those longer term if you had been allowed to do that in a way you were comfortable with. Yeah, definitely. And and there was a lot, I mean, at the time we were still trying to figure out the changes in the business, like the, the fact that trades were right self-contained stories. That was so new at the time. It was pretty new. And Mike Martz was, um, kept saying, it's almost like you're better. He would tell me, it's almost like you're better suited to the one and dones where, cause he said, I love reading those individualized stories. Like, you know, uh, you were talking about fall, fall down, go boom, where mm-hmm. our star saves the little, tries to save the little boy and fails. Yeah. That's a great one shot. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, I actually got the, the Avengers writing job because of the, uh, the story about visiting skin in the cemetery. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, then Angel wind up saving the children of the bigot that is digging up his friend. Right. How did you pick the characters that were going to be crucified on the lawn? Were you given a list or did you pick them individually? 
Uh, no, they were they were characters that Marvel wanted to. They felt they were trying. They were actually trying to go the opposite of what I was doing. They were trying to get rid of characters that duplicated powers of other characters. And Skin was one that they felt they Mister Fantastic. They felt he was just Mr. Fantastic, but not as good, basically. I don't know if they thought that it wasn't so much that he was not as good as it was that by having two Mr. Fantastics, you dilute the potency of Mr. Fantastic. The brand of Mr. Fantastic. It's the branding thing, yeah. You don't want two Captain Americas. You don't want, you know. Right. Skin and Jesse Bedlam are the two who die. They're able to save Jubilee and uh, Magma. Yeah, yeah. And that was part of the, that was a, that was a decision on the parts of the when when it came down to having those people crucified on the lawn it was marvel was telling me which ones they wanted to get rid of obviously i had to check with them anyway if i want to kill off a character well of course you have to check but it's always again it's nice to pull the curtain back on certain things like that because i think that for a lot of fans and i'm guilty of this myself the writer is just the person who you assume makes all these decisions because yeah. we don't know the name of everybody else who's in the conversation <laughs> the writer does not yeah in fact, sometimes those books would come out and I would go, I didn't write that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. That dialogue isn't what I wrote. That's uh, interesting. My dialogue, yeah. So, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that happens like that. And, you know, it, it's it's like you were saying, these characters, they don't belong to me. They belong to somebody else. So, mm-hmm. you know, what, what winds up in those books is it all gets determined there. I guess they're not in New York anymore. Is that? Is that... Uh, no, our Marvel's still in New York. DC moved there. to LA. Okay. So yeah, it's all those decisions are all made in New York. Tyler Aiken writes, Nurse Annie, standout supporting. Dear Connor and the esteemed Mr. Austin, first off, as always, I'd like to thank Connor for the incredible communities created and fostered on our favorite band of Merry Mutants. And for Mr. Austin, I'd like to thank you for the various works and contributions over the years. Now on to my question. Superhero comics are often famous for rotating out their supporting cast, especially when it comes to the non-powered cast members and love interests. The X-Men have had no shortage of non-powered supporting characters that stand out, from Moira McTaggart in her original conception to Candy Southern to later characters like Jeff Bannister and, of course, Nurse Annie. When it comes to creating a non-powered character to interact with a cast of colorful personalities and powers like the X-Men, were there any traits you consciously sought to incorporate to help her stand out? What kinds of qualities do you think help non-costumed characters like Annie or other noteworthy characters like Mary Jane Watson stand out and capture readers' attention while keeping them from feeling like props or window dressing in a superhero story? Thank you both for all your hard work over the years. Best wishes, Tyler Aiken. Well, Tyler, the main thing for me as a writer is you're looking for two things. You're looking to fill voids and you're looking to create conflict. That's basically the substrate of any writing. I think any writer will, any writer will tell you that, that conflict is really where you want to go. That's why I loved Stacey X. She's just walking conflict. (laughs) And Annie is conflict because she is a human in a in a mutant world where they're trying to feel safe and protected from humans but at the same time she also filled a void because she was kind of the mother figure where Xavier would be the father figure she was a, a, a kind of a feminine person that somebody could talk to a feminine energy person that people could talk to uh, about prop like like you know the, it, you'd be in a in a you're in a vulnerable position when you're in a hospital room, usually. And if you're talking to the nurse, you're, you're sometimes maybe saying things that nobody else you are is going to hear that you and you don't want them to hear, like Bobby talking about his his inability to change all bo- parts of his body back. And so she's someone they felt comfortable talking to because yeah. she was a healthcare professional. So that's yeah. yeah, that's an interesting angle. And from a I mean, as a writer, you would know from a writing standpoint, sometimes you need to you need a way creatively 
to convey information to the audience that doesn't feel like expositional dialogue. So having mm -hmm. two characters who have a potentially a tense relationship uh, uh, between the two of them, whether it's tension through love or tension through hostility or whatever, um, having the dialogue that sort of exposes things like Bobby's his homophobia, as it were, or his mutant internalized, phobia. whatever. Yeah. yeah. That's how you tell stories is you have to have two characters talking about things. So you, you create characters that fill the void so that you can essentially have reasons to have good dialogue uh, and that drives the story forward. Yeah. And Annie also serves the purpose that previous human characters sometimes had in this franchise, specifically characters like Stevie Hunter or, uh, before she becomes the Goblin Queen, Madeline Pryor, where it's someone who has no experience with the X-Men's kind of lifestyle, adventure, all of it, these things with powers and danger rooms and all that, and someone needs to explain, oh, these are the Shi'ar, they're alien bird people who are like ancient Rome, and we have a long history with them. And so, you know, that didn't come up in your story, but you get what I'm saying. It's like, yeah, no, it's a viewpoint character. Someone needs to explain who Black Tom Cassidy is. And so you might as well explain it to Annie Gazakanian because she's never met him, you know? Right. Yep. Exactly right. And that's in some ways, that's why the longer term fans hate those characters most because they know all that information. Yeah. They're like, shut up. You're so dumb. I know this yeah. already. Yeah. But if you want new readers and we were trying to get new readers, you have to bring in viewpoint characters. Right. Noah Zeidman asked what it was like working with Kia Asamiya on those issues. Ah, Noah, good question. Kia was amazing. I'm a big fan. Like, I was a silent Mobius fan as a kid. Yeah. I read it in the Viz, I think, put out like the English yep. versions. And so I was really excited that Kia Asamiya was going to be on X Men. And it definitely was a very big departure from the Marvel House style. I remember all the press about it at the time. Yeah. And it was, it was. I don't want to say a step down, but it was not it was not what you would call a beneficial thing for him to do. No, because he's a hugely famous guy in Japan. <laughs> yeah. Well, we had we had dinner with him one night. We met him in, in Canada when he came out for a convention and he came out to talk about X-Men. And we said, well, how you know, why why would you want to do X-Men? Is it I, I my understanding is that uh your comics sell tremendously well in Japan. I said, What is your like what do, what does one of your books sell? And he says, Well, I've got one coming out tomorrow that has a 2.1 million mm -hmm. initial print run. And the whole table just about <laughs> passed out. <laughs> well, it's always silly when we compare like people now haters will be like, Oh, like, you know, such and such manga outsold the entire US comics industry. And that's because the U.S. comics industry, anytime after about 1985, is a marginal industry. It's a yeah. hobbyist industry, whereas manga is a core part of Japanese pop culture. It's something everyone reads. Yeah. To them, it's just like a novel or a TV show. It's just a, a medium that is part of everyday life. Yeah. 2.1 million. Can you imagine if like even Batman could sell that many copies? Oh my God. And that's just the initial print run. That doesn't Right. That's the first print run. Reprint. There's no reprints. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. crazy. What was his answer? Why did he want to do it? Because he, he loved it. He had, he owned, he owned like one of the Batmobiles from the original Michael Keaton movie. Wow. He owned the bat suit. I mean, yeah, the guy had a ton of money. He was, he did really, really well. Yeah. He was set for life. So he had bought all of this stuff cause he was a huge Batman fan and he got a company to license Batman so that he could do his own Batman comic in Japan. He also loved the X-Men. So he really, really wanted to work on the X-Men and it was just unfortunate from, from all standpoints that 
the story that he wound up getting was something like dominant species as opposed to a giant magneto battle which is i think what he would have loved right he wanted to do like a big dark phoenix saga kind of moment yeah. or you yeah. know something classic yeah. and it was much more like werewolves running around in the woods yeah yeah it really but was listen they were beautifully rendered werewolves it's great storytelling amazing stuff really he, he, I, emotion is a big part of what i do i and it's what part of what i teach animation students here so he he nailed it i could not have been happier he does love drawing a naked beautiful woman so husk was definitely in his wheelhouse as a character to draw so there was <laughs> yeah. that and i did love the dark stalker's edge that he brought to the evil lorna design yeah. which was a yeah. lot of fun Dr. Holly Raymond of Temple University writes, Hi, Connor, an extremely esteemed guest. Chuck, your stint on the X-Men has had kind of a critical reevaluation in recent years. And on a recent reread, I found myself really vibing with a lot of it. You brought back a certain very material and visceral sense of melodrama and pulp to the franchise that had kind of fallen away after Claremont. And I remember that the early aughts were also a time when the shocking degree of horniness in the Claremont stuff was kind of under-discussed as well. You made the X-Men into a more lurid chaos soap opera about beautiful and high-strung people again in a really fascinating way. Was this shift back towards Claremontian high melodrama a conscious decision on your part or more of an organic outgrowth of your sensibilities as a writer and artist? What kind of pushback did you experience from editorial, if any, for some of the more wild decisions in your run, like Havoc threatening to piss Iceman a new body or Angel and Husk fucking in midair? Were there any plot twists or throwaway lines that got Nyxtas going too far? Super stoked to hear your episode and I'm really happy people are coming back to your run with fresh eyes. I think you brought a very singular energy to the books and gave the characters so many truly indelible moments that are as fun for us to argue about in 2023 as they were 20 years ago. Best, Professor Holly Raymond. Thank you, Professor Holly. I appreciate that. Uh, all of the above. Holly was last week's guest on oh, uh, the really? show. She's, she's great. Oh, We did Jamie Braddock, uh, and it was oh, a yeah? real deep, wild dive through Captain Britain lore. Oh, wow. Okay. So yes, to all of the above. I mean, we talked about it earlier. That was everything that I was doing was going back to that old Claremont burn run, Claremont Cockrum run, where that was all, you know, uh, pulpy soap and, and, uh, and horny teenage kids in a, in a mansion by the, it's like, it's basically college students in their freshman year when you think about it, uh, and which I can speak very clearly too these days because my i've got a, a son who's a freshman college student so uh i'm getting a face full of it all over again <laughs> so uh yeah for the most part they were on board with everything that i did including the sex scene with husk and and uh angel uh because i think all of us remembered having had those experiences where you just kind of go at the moment and maybe you really shouldn't you know you're you're, uh, I, I don't want to get into my own personal mistakes <laughs> or things that I've done that I'm a little embarrassed about from when I was a young, young boy, uh, but, um, they happen. Um, and the, the one thing that they toned down from that is that originally, I think a shoe falls on Nightcrawler's face in the story originally. Yeah. Was it a bra? It was her panties. Yeah. Uh, and they were just like little much. That's it. So that was too far. And then the other thing that I got pulled back on the, I, I was surprised that I got the pissing Iceman a new body. Uh, through i want to on behalf of the gay community i would like to thank you for that line because we've all <laughs> had thoughts about it for many years now that's funny i think that's probably where it came from too is that there were jokes about it and i thought i'll just put it in one of the comics well and they've always had i mean one of the one of the joke catchphrases on this podcast is that dating polaris is gay 
because it came up in the Iceman episode where it's like, you know, people who are arguing against Bendis revealing that Iceman was gay, they were like, well, he's had female love interests. I'm like, yeah, but look at who they are. Every homosexual in the world wants to date Polaris. Are you kidding me? Like, she's a drag queen character. So there's always been kind of a, a frisson of like homosocial triangle weirdness between Alex and Bobby and them fighting over Lorna. So it was a very funny like weird sexual tension moment that I think was was hilarious but it's also just like such a gross idea that it works on like 50 different levels I thought yeah. I, I think that panel is so freaking funny um then there's uh, uh the one thing I didn't get to do was originally when uh, Xavier and Wolverine go back to Genosha and they're going to have the funeral for Magneto and and Wolverine is fighting him about it originally before sliding down it and slicing the face in half, uh, Wolverine pisses on on Magneto's head. Uh, so, and they wouldn't they wouldn't let me do that, even though that had been done in 1978 in Shogun. Yep. I mean, you on know, primetime television. So, and that's what I meant. It was, it's, you give Lorna a great speech at that funeral too. She tells Charles basically shut the fuck up. And it's about time. One of those kids was like, <laughs> Hey professor, shut the fuck up. Actually. So I, <laughs> yeah. I, I enjoyed it on that level, even if she's a little misguided in some of the things she says, but you get where she's coming from. It's that point of view that everybody has. It's like, are you spiritual or are you in the real world? Right. Like get it together, my guy. Like, yeah this idealistic bullshit is not helping us actually yeah. oh that reminds me how did the whole like did they just tell you we want to make zorn a real character can you come up with a way to bring zorn back originally grant wanted to make magneto like that was villain. yeah exactly and did in like final issue or mm -hmm. next final penultimate issue or whatever it was and so after it was over they asked me to write have the funeral, you know, everybody goes and everybody comes to the funeral and it's a big deal. And I said, are you kidding me? Grant just turned him into Osama bin Laden. Right. And it's like, we're having Chris Claremont come in to say it wasn't really Magneto. So like, yeah, they turned that all around real quick. That was exactly it. So they said, can you figure a way out of this so that Zorn wasn't really Magneto? He was somebody else. And so you just kind of smacked that together. I spitballed it together. Yeah. Yeah. I, he was he had a black hole for a brain so i said he was a twin who had yeah, a the black hole instead of the star the star yeah. was the twin yeah it was yeah yeah look i'm and don't don't ask me to make it make any sense i was just told to write my way out of that situation so. <laughs> the one thing that that is funny is that the twin you gave the name kuan yin which is a, a goddess's name <laughs> it, it, so it's a, it's a it's a woman's name and then the thing that's funny about it is that kanon the japanese Psylocke, is also named that's the japanese version of that name so someday oh. she and zorn should like sit down and have a have tea and talk about it yeah they should because she'd be like how'd you get that name that doesn't really make a ton of sense and he'd be yeah. like we were under a lot of stress and the comic had to come out next week yeah thank you for indulging my curiosity on that sure keaton howard writes hello connor and the awesome mr austin longtime listener first time writer connor your podcast has reignited my love for the x-men when i first heard of the show i pulled it up and saw a 3.5 hour episode about sauron and instantly knew this was going to be my new favorite podcast <laughs> it is a very specific kind of person who loves this show but you're all very loyal and i appreciate it my question is for mr austin and a thread that ran through his x-men oh we've talked about this a bit already we were introduced to the idea that i can only describe a subspecies of mutants curtain is azal are part of a demon group warren and jay 
Fey are part of an angel group. Wolverine and Maximus Lobo are part of some type of wolf group. Was there going to be other subspecies of mutants? Was there anything more planned to it, like a civil war between all the groups? Or is this not really a thing you had planned? I've just been making it all up in my head since I was 12. Connor, thank you for the show. It's the highlight of my week. Mr. Austin, thank you for the comics. My parents were getting divorced when you were writing the X-Men, and Juggernaut being a great dad to Sammy the Fish Boy was very cathartic to me at the time. Love you both. Wow, awesome. Well, I so that was, that. you were, yes, you were building toward a confrontation between these different subspecies of mutants. And yeah, uh, yeah. that's just not what came to pass in the end. Yeah, it was, it was supposed to be like, it would have been what you would consider, I guess, a crossover event of the decade where all of the mutants all over the world were fighting with each other and everybody else had to get involved to try like to sectarian stop. violence within yeah. the mutant community. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I get the appeal of that, particularly like these comics are all in the wake of nine 11. Right. So there yeah. is like all of this discussion about sectarian violence happening in the media. And so I could see where, where that would appeal. It was way too much on our minds all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing that I, I keep explaining to fans of this show who are in their 20s who were either small children or not alive yet yeah. for 9-11, which is, makes me feel ancient. Yeah. You know, just explaining that, like, I mean, I remember there was controversy about your War Machine comic initially because it came out, like, September 10th or something like that. It did, yeah, yeah. It was like not great timing for that book. It was the worst possible timing, not a single. Console. And then Grant yeah. nuked Genosha and did this huge thing yeah. like two months before 9-11. So it just, it, it, it really, the trajectory of the comic universe changed just as much as the trajectory of the real world changed. Yeah. Maxwell Warner, on a similar note, writes, Dear Connor and the inimitable Chuck Austin, Mr. Austin, I listened to your great interview on the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, and I have a follow-up for you on the topic of punctuated equilibrium. In that interview, you revealed that you had imagined the canine mutants like Maximus Lobo as a third faction in the eventual Book of Enoch-inspired Angel Devil War story you had established in the Draco. Was Maximus Lobo's faction intended to represent all the various animals mentioned in the Book of Enoch, or were there to be further factions beyond them? Was Sammy the Squid Boy the harbinger of a new generation of fish people? Outside of the X-Men, Chuck, I'd just like to thank you for all the work you did to help N.D. Stevenson's vision for She-Ra and the Princesses of Power come to life. It was and is a very special, important show for many of us. I'm sure it also means a lot to the kids on Krakoa. Wishing you both all the best. Maxwell Warner, they, them, head, H-E-D, on Discord. Oh, thanks. Yeah, Shiva means a lot to me too. So I'm really glad that it's touched so many people. But uh, uh, yes, they were. It, it was intended to be. There would be groups of of animals and and creatures and other types of mutants that would appear that had already begun to cluster up, and that's how we would start to find out about it. My question about Squid Boy is why is he called Squid Boy when his head is a fish and not a squid? Because it's it's one of those things that kids do, you know, <laughs> where, where it's they... like not logical, but it's just the nickname he got on the playground. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's a nickname he got on the playground. His face started to change and they started calling him Squid Boy. There you go. Mapia writes, hi, Connor and Chuck. In an exploration of Nightcrawler's history in the Draco, we're introduced to the concept of the Neophem and Chearophem, bloodlines of mutants with demonic and angelic traits who had historical nations and cultures. In this story, we learn of distinct mutant ethnicities with separate ideals and histories from the one commonly explored in the X-Line. This concept has more recently been explored with the Iraqi mutants introduced by Jonathan Hickman and Teeny Howard. My question is this, what in your view does the concept of these bloodlines add to our understanding of mutantum? How does belonging to one of those 
those bloodlines shape the experience of being a mutant? Are there other mutants out there that you think may also share a common lineage? We just covered that sort of, but do you think mutants in future generations would view Wolverine and his many clones and children as their own mutant ethnicity? Thank you, Mapia. Uh, it's interesting. I, I, I we hadn't really thought about it that far forward, but um, probably, yeah. I mean, yeah, if if you're if I'm thinking, I mean, it makes sense if I had Azazel being uh, somewhat uh, Kurt's lineage. Mm -hmm. That further into the future, there would be children and grandchildren and great grandchildren of Wolverine who would have evolved in a completely different direction. Yeah, I think that would be. I mean, actually, Mapia, I think that that is because these questions have been open for a while. The issue that just came out this week of Nightcrawler's The Sins of Sinister event, they're doing an event right now that jumps 10, then 100, then 1,000 years into the future, into this dark future that Mr. Sinister has set in motion. And one of the things that's going on in the book right now is that there is this lineage that's like the Wagner gene. Like there's all these Nightcrawler yeah. chimeras that Sinister has created and generations upon generations of them. And they all have sort of different things going on but you do see in that book very much the idea of them having an ethnocultural heritage from being nightcrawlers over the course of decades and decades so yeah i think that that is something that that would evolve naturally if you started to see mutants group themselves by power whether or not it actually was true that they were biologically related that's also just sometimes how groups start to form is by recognizing similarities in each other Sam Gladstone writes, howdy, Connor and Chuck. Before the question, I just want to start with this. Thank you, Chuck Austin. Your run on X-Men is the reason I began reading comics. Wow. Thank you. I had read the odd issue here and there as a child, some old She-Hulk and power packs that you grab from the 25 cent bin at a tiny bookstore, but I'd never been a proper reader until my mom came home one day with the first issue of She Lies with Angels. It changed everything. I bought all the issues of it I could find, and I was living in the United Arab Emirates at the time, so access to comics was not easy. But I hunted down each issue out of order and eventually got the whole thing. I didn't know who half the characters were or why Juggernaut was there or who the fuck were the Guthries, but I loved it and reread it <laughs> until it fell apart. I know that storyline was polarizing, but I I mean it when I say it changed my life. Thank you, Chuck. And thank you, Connor, for giving me the opportunity to say this. As for my question, Chuck, did you have future plans for more about the Guthrie kids? Thank you so much. Sam Gladstone, a.k.a. Reese Indigo. Well, you mentioned that you wanted to bring Sam back in to have conflict with Angel about Paige. Yeah, there was um, uh, the story that was planned was the 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 uh, I, I don't I didn't have a name for it yet, but the was the husk um, collector. And he was at, at some point he would get beyond the point where he wanted to keep husks and he wanted he to wanted keep her actually husk. Yeah. So he kidnaps her and and Warren is going crazy trying to find her when Sam shows up and is super pissed off at him for basically defiling his sister in front of his mother. <laughs> and Sam is just beating the living crap out of him while Warren is trying to say, I'm trying to find your sister. She's she's in trouble. And he can't get he that's the only way that he's finally gets Sam to stop beating up on him. Um, and then uh, and then, yes, eventually they they go and they risk they rescue Husk. And he realizes that she really genuinely cares for him and he genuinely cares for her. And so he you know, he recognizes, OK, you you know, it was kind of stupid, but um, I'm willing to forgive you since you, you know, obviously you have genuine feelings for her. So there was going to be more. 
Uh, and, you know, it, it, I wind up falling in love with characters. There's a possibility. I really liked having her mom as a part of the story. It's a fun showing for Lucinda, who's another one of those human characters who's been around yeah. in the franchise for a long time. And having her be more of like, a, I'm going to get the shotgun like kind of character was a fun yeah. evolution of her. Did you have any plans for any of the other siblings? Obviously, you turned Jay into uh, Icarus, and he's a character who endured for a long time after you were... Well, he did get killed off really brutally, but he's back now. So, uh, you know, it's <laughs> that's, how it, that's, how it, that's how it goes, right? I think that a character called Icarus is due for a pretty grisly death at some point. That is sort of the... That comes with sense. the territory, right? Yeah. But um, did you have any plans to maybe bring in any of the other siblings or were you just going to focus I, in on? I didn't have any specific plans, but I'm sure they would have made an appearance because I did have things I wanted to do with Josh. So, yeah. Yeah, Josh. He, he He's Josh in your story. He becomes Jay in uh, oh, the later series because there was another Josh. Uh, so it was confusing. So they're like, we're going to call you Jay. Is that okay? And he's like, yeah, that's fine. Whatever. Yeah. They address it on the <laughs> like in the comic because they were like, oh, shit, we got two Joshes. Uh, okay. What I remember thinking was interesting was that you used Lizzie, who's the one that, it, like, she's briefly in She Lies with Angels, but she's the one everybody forgets about because she only has ever appeared in Age of Apocalypse. Yeah. And has never developed her superpowers. And I think it's about time that Lizzie should just wake up one day and <laughs> join the fold. Chuck Marsh writes, hello, Connor and Mr. Austin. I have to say, this is one of the creator episodes I've been most excited for because I am somewhat obsessed with the Austin run and have been glad that as time goes on, it's being looked back on more favorably by critics. I'm sure a lot of my general questions about the big things will be answered by now, but I wanted to at least drop a question about something this run did to my personal X fandom. This run shot Kane Marco the Juggernaut into my top five favorite X-Men characters, where he's been ever since, leading me to follow him in and out of X-Books to things like Thunderbolts and being so excited with his recent return under Fabian Niciesa and Cy Spurrier, bringing him into the Krakoan era. Bring on the Black Tom and Juggernaut wedding spectacular. You know I want to ride it, and Marvel knows where to reach me. <laughs> Mr. Austin, what made you decide to reform one of the earliest ex-villains into a somewhat stalwart ally of the mutants? I found the talk Kane and Charles had on how they both were shaped by the Elder Marco's abuse to be great. It gave Kane a lot of pathos. And I can't say how much I was able to empathize with his big brother bordering on fatherly relationship with Sammy. How does it feel to have written one of the biggest heel-face turns in the franchise pre the Krakoan amnesty? Even when later writers have used Kane as an antagonist, it's generally been out of a love and respect for Charles after your stories. So I'd say the character turn has stuck. Much love and respect to you, Mr. Austin, for being willing to talk about your run with this crazy franchise. And my niece asked me to tell you that she loves She-Ra. As always, Connor, much gushing <laughs> about how great this pod is. Thank you, Chuck Marsh. Uh, thanks, Chuck. Uh, my namesake. Um, yeah, tell well, and and thank to your your niece as well. We all we appreciate all the people that enjoyed it because there it was a uh, uh, it was definitely a favorite project of ours on Shira. So um, as far as um, uh, Juggernaut, <laughs> I've said this <laughs> elsewhere, but I asked for Colossus and I couldn't have him because he was dead. Because he was dead, and so I said, well. Um, I, and then I, I thought about it. I thought I would really like to have a big powerhouse on the team. And I don't remember what happened, but I woke up one morning and I thought, oh, maybe Juggernaut. Maybe they'll let me have Juggernaut. So I asked and I said, can I turn him? And I wanted like slowly turn him good through this relationship with a young boy that he basically becomes a father figure for. And, I, you know, and, and that was all based on uh, J2, which I thought was part of continuity, just like a future mm. continuity. So I was 
I would have thought, oh, I'll start leading into that continuity. Yeah, that's fair. You're not the only person who's ever portrayed Juggernaut with a woman because the J2 continuity also does. So if that was the, then that, I forgive you for missing (laughs) the the gay subtext because J2 had him have a wife. Yeah. Which I also found confusing at the time. I just, to me, and I'd have to ask Chris Claremont, but to me, it's like Mystique and Destiny where like he just can't say it, but like they're always together. It's my partner. They met in prison. Juggernaut is always doing crimes to pay for Black Tom's medical bills and stuff like that. Like it's very uh, dog day afternoon. Yeah. So yeah, you know, but though that makes a lot of sense. That's really interesting because you and grant both asked for colossus and we're both told you can't use colossus we just killed colossus and as a result used the character who your run probably became most closely associated with you with juggernaut and emma frost for grant you can't have storm or colossus well i need another woman on the team and we need someone who has that physical powerhouse power and so they gave emma the diamond form Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that. And so that's where that all came from. It's because Colossus was not available. That goes to show how these characters as IP you don't own, the whole story can really change based on restrictions and things. The weird fun of Big Two Comics is making your story work amid all of that. And honestly, sometimes for the better. I don't... I. Yeah, I think your story is better with Juggernaut than it would have been with Colossus. And I think Emma, I don't think Grant's X-Men would work without Emma. I think Emma's the key character to that whole run. Yeah. And now she's one of the A-list, most important X-Men characters, purely because that comic was so good, you know? So that'll happen. Yeah. Another Juggernaut question. Kenneth Christ writes, Hi, Connor and Mr. Austin. I have to start out by saying this podcast has brought me so much joy. I listen to it as I train every day and garner very confused looks from other gym goers as I giggle and emote in what I can only assume are ridiculous and over-the-top ways. Well, thank you, Kenneth. I do not encourage heavy lifting while listening to this podcast, but I support you in your journey as long as you have a spotter and you're being safe. The topic of my question, the juggernaut. My favorite part of Austin's run was seeing him become a more heroic and nurturing man because I always saw that potential in him. I'm a gay man who grew up with a physically and emotionally abusive father. I would be beaten for crying or being soft. To compound all of this, I grew up Southern Baptist and being told I was an abomination and any number of other horrible things. All this to say I was a very sad, very lonely, gay, misunderstood, desperate young man. That's why I felt a connection to Cain Marco. He found a way to become the strongest in the room so that no one would make him feel the way his father father or his peers or society had ever again, something I've tried to emulate. The juggernaut in Mr. Austin's run to me felt like a gay man who'd become too tired of being strong. He witnessed his partner lose his humanity and become something monstrous. The life they'd built together crumbled. His network of support had crumbled. He'd gone to the X-Men, the closest thing to a family he could think of for help, only to be jeered at by Wolverine making gay jokes and snide remarks about Black Tom. So what does juggernaut do? He does what a lot of self-hating adult gay men do. He tries to push it down and lock it away, and he tries to change. My question, is this at all what you were trying to convey in your characterization of the juggernaut? If not, Could you give us some idea of what you were trying to convey? I understand that how the reader interprets it is probably more important, but I've always been curious. And even if that wasn't your intention at all, you touched my life in a very important way. Thank you both for the joy that you've brought us all. Ken Chris. Well, Ken, thank you for writing in about something so personal. Chuck, you said that that wasn't your intention, but it was my reading of the character as well. So it's interesting to see that other people, other gay men saw that in the character, even when he was in bed with She-Hulk. 
Yeah. And that's, uh, I, and thank you, Ken. That's a, that's a very uh, vulnerable thing to say. And I really appreciate you um, checking in about that and being so honest about your own story. Um, but I think in some ways that's how, that's just how that common sort of childhood trauma can, can, it, it can show that we're all, we're all the same. I mean, I, all of the things that he was describing are things that I've felt mm -hmm. that sense of abandonment, that sense of loneliness and isolation and the, the, the you know, the, the tears, uh, getting a beating, uh, all of that stuff is stuff that I went through personally. And it's why I gave it to Kane Marco. Cause I wanted to, I wanted that his story to be that sort of story of redemption and those emotions to be genuine and real. And that growth period for him to be similar to the one that I went through where I was able to kind of come out through the entire process a lot stronger than I was. So I think that even though he wasn't, I wasn't specifically referring to him as, as gay. He, uh, if, if he touched you that way, that's fantastic. That's wonderful. But I think it's just how genuinely and strongly those emotions affect us uh, on a personal level when we go through that kind of trauma, that it's, it's, it's very universal, those feelings that we have. The theme of abuse is also very present throughout. Annie, as we mentioned, is a survivor of domestic violence. Her mutant ex was abusive to her, and that's why she left. So there is this idea of characters who've been abused in all sorts of ways. Bobby's parents, as you note, had already been established to be very emotionally abusive, bigoted, nasty people. Yeah. So you've got a lot of characters who are trying to find their way, even though their families were not necessarily there for them. I mean, we know nothing about Stacey X's family, but she doesn't appear to have any contact with them. She had a found family that was then taken from her at the yeah. X ranch. And, you know, Husk has a loving family, but she's rebelling in ways that make them uneasy. And, you know, it's, it's all sort of, it all interweaves. And I think that there's something, there's an appealing parallel between Kane overcoming his childhood abuse at the hands of his father and Annie overcoming the abuse at the hands of her ex-husband. I think yeah. that that makes a lot of sense. Clover Darling writes, Hello, Mr. Goldsmith and Mr. Austin. I'm writing today to inquire about a revelation made in Austin's Uncanny X-Men that mutants cannot contract HIV AIDS. This is something I've made a lot of jokes about in this podcast, I do have to confess. It's all right. People often comment on the conversation between Husk and Nurse Annie, where Paige tells Annie that mutants can't get AIDS, much to Annie's surprise. But there's another less talked about scene where Warren goes to donate his new healing blood and informs a human doctor that it doesn't need to be screened for HIV because he's a mutant. What I noticed reading those scenes was that in both cases it was a non-medically trained mutant informing a human healthcare worker about mutant medicine. Yep. It reminded me of cases of majority healthcare workers who are largely uninformed about minority healthcare. For example, a white doctor who doesn't know what bruising looks like on black skin tones. Yeah. What I would like to ask Mr. Austin is, was this intentional parallelism on your part? And if not, what was your intentions with these scenes and that subplot? Thank you both for your time. And thank you especially to Mr. Austin for agreeing to be interviewed. Sent with love, Clover Darling. The intention was, uh, that was part of the intention, was that um, the, the human world doesn't know about the mutant world. And in some cases, they don't, they don't care enough to care to go find out the information that they need to know. It's conspicuous that she's a nurse and that this yeah. news shocks her, right? So Yeah, but the number of times that I've spoken to doctors or nurses over the years where they haven't had the information that, I, that I've had has been jarring to me as well uh, until I finally had a doctor who admitted to me at one point, well, you know, we like to pretend we know everything, but we really don't. My sister is a doctor, my baby sister, who's six years younger than me, and uh, she's very, very smart, but... 
My brother and I were talking recently about how the scariest thing about your little sister becoming a doctor is realizing that every doctor is just someone's little sister or cousin yeah. or whatever. Like they're just people. You're like, huh, that's weird. Yeah. Like I argue with my sister all the time about all kinds of things. And so, wait, I could also argue with her about medical care. <laughs> I just yeah. don't because you assume that doctors know everything. One of the things she told me about medical school, her experience of it was that thankfully, I mean, I, I, these are initiatives that are ongoing, but she had to take courses about bias and about medical ethics in that sense, because there's all kinds of studies that show that minority patients don't receive the same standard of care, particularly black people Absolutely. in this country. The death rate among African-Americans was six times higher than whites during the pandemic. Particularly women, there's all of the studies that have been done about the rate of death in childbirth and how yeah. black women's pain is not taken seriously, et cetera. So yeah. that makes it make a lot more sense. I think that the talking point, mutants can't get AIDS, became kind of mimetic as like a crazy twist. You know, again, this was the thinking again that Mutants are supposed to be an evolution of the species, and so they would naturally have some adaptations that yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Kat Driscoll writes, greetings, Connor and Mr. Austin. Mr. Austin, I'm so thrilled you're appearing as a guest for this episode on Annie Gazakanian. I'm excited to hear more about how this character came to be. My question, though, is more about your run generally. Well, specifically one scene that's been seared into my brain for all time. I'm talking, of course, about the famous baby yeeting scene where Mystique throws infant Nightcrawler off a cliff. Personally, it's one of my favorite panels of all time. I think it's one of the most iconic scenes in X-Men history. I love how well it fits the character of Mystique and the dynamic it creates between her and Kurt. I have to ask, what was your thought process when you wrote that scene and what made you decide to add it. I look forward to hearing your thoughts on Annie and also about your run in general. Thanks so much to both of you and warmest regards, Kat Driscoll. I believe that the, that she tossed him off the waterfall comes from the Scott Lobdell story earlier, yeah. but you do give the incredibly iconic panel where the baby bundle bamfs away, which yeah. is very funny. Yeah. Yeah, he's he's protected by his father because his father his father basically uh, impregnated Mystique because he he needed those children. <laughs> so right. So my question, actually, while we're on the subject, I uh, am noted as a big fan of Margali Sardish and Amanda Sefton and that whole corner of Nightcrawler's oh, yeah. lore. Yeah. There's an implication in the Draco that Margali and Azazel are acquainted. Did you have a plan there? Or was that just to explain how Kurt had ended up with Margali? That was because uh, they, they just sort of randomly find him by the creek bed, I think, originally. Right. But then Mystique is like, when Mystique is hinting to Kurt in the 80s that she's his parent she's yeah. like ask your mother margali so it's clear that there was more to the story yeah 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 the idea was that he had gone to margali and said hey you know there's a baby that this baby is important i need you to take this baby yeah yeah well, that's a story that might be fun to to play with at some point. I personally, because I I am personally invested in the Mystique and Destiny are Kurt's biological parents idea. But I think that one of the things that's nice about Azazel is that he's the devil. So he it would be very easy to come up with all kinds of ways that the story he related to us is not 100% exactly what happened. And Oh, absolutely. Go for it. That's fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean... I do think there's fun potential with that character once I'm glad that we've now emphatically established that he's not a demon. He's a mutant who has pretensions yeah. uh, because I think that yeah. that is important. 
Jordan Broadway writes, hello, Connor and Mr. Austin. Connor, oh, this sounds funny. <laughs> Connor, I'm constantly blown away by the balance of humor and insight you and your guests are able to bring to each episode. There are times when I feel like Cerebro sincerely broadened my outlook on the world by seeing it through the perspectives of random X characters I barely ever read. And then there are times when I giggle like an idiot because of something like Celine dressing down her disappointing granddaughter, Magma. Well, you're welcome. That is the joy of this show, is, is trying to run the gamut there. And thank you so much for the kind words. Chuck, I want to quickly highlight your brief work on X Exiles with Jim Calafiore. It's a series that tends to get overlooked by X-Men fans, but I really dug it as a teen, and your King Hyperion arc was always one of my favorites. And of course, as a Steven Universe fan, I'm extremely grateful for the success you found in animation production. Anyway, Chuck, I gotta ask about Nightcrawler's second dick. <laughs> God, I can't believe nobody's asked that question yet. That's amazing. <laughs> Way Back on the DVD special features for X2 X-Men United, you did an interview about writing Nightcrawler for the comics at the time where you famously made an offhand joke that if Nightcrawler has two fingers and two toes on each limb, he might have two of something else. Needless to say, I've been trying to figure out the anatomy for the past 20 years. Would they be aligned vertically or horizontally? Would he have four testicles? Why isn't there a bigger bulge? Is he sticking them each down one pant leg? I hope not with all the acrobatics. Thank you both so much for the episode, and I'm deeply sorry if you've actually read this email on the air. I had to because <laughs> the question of Kurt's two dicks is something that has inflamed X-Men fandom for 20 years now. I do assume it was just a joke. It was just, <laughs> yes, it was just a joke. Jubilee does comment. I think it's Jubilee when in the Draco, when they see him naked, she's like, whoa. And as people are like, see, she's woeing at the two dicks. And I'm like, no, I think she's just woeing that this hot guy is naked suddenly. Yeah, that would be enough. Yeah. But for the record, do you think vertical or horizontal, if it were true? Uh, actually, I think that they're um, they're conjoined uh, and they rotate. So they spin. Love that for him. No wonder Amanda always had a smile on her face. Yeah. yeah. And they're any outies. That's why they don't show in the pant legs because they, uh, you know, they retract. They, they retract. Yeah. Gotcha. OK, well, you heard it here first. <laughs> and now that's canon. <laughs> <laughs> Luke Reddick writes, Hi, Cerebro and the auspicious Mr. Austin. I'm old enough to remember picking up your run in single issues and have fond memories of a lot of the choices made. Husk graduating to the main team, Juggernaut getting a chance at redemption, reckoning with the abuse in his past. But I think the thing that stuck with me was the inclusion of Northstar and how much ass he got to kick. At a time in pop culture where gay men were often relegated to being sage, sexless sources of advice for their straight friends, your Jean-Paul got to chew Warren out for his terrible business choices, strip Guardian naked, and generally punch the shit out of his enemies. And it's definitely stayed with me in a positive way so thank you for that my somewhat frivolous question is if you could revisit the character of north star which major marvel character would you most like to write him wiping the floor with best luke reddick p.s i once won an x-men trivia quiz due to being able to spell gazakanian correctly so thanks for that too <laughs> amazing i'm so impressed um, actually i'd like to do uh, an, an entire 10 issue run where north star wipes the floor with every single marvel character so that would be my answer. That'd be super fun. Honestly, yeah. he's due for another solo outing. He hasn't had one since the 90s. And back then they weren't allowed to say the word gay, even though they had had him come out. But like in the whole mini, they never say the word again. Yeah. Like, we did it one yeah. time. That's all you're going to get. Yeah. 
Jerry Keys writes, Dear Connor and most esteemed of all possible guests, Chuck Austin, the Austin era was actually my adult introduction to the X-Men, and I particularly love the Jean-Paul Annie Bobby triangle of it all. Lorna's bachelorette party with a gambit stripper is seared in my homosexual heart until the day I die, <laughs> in part because of its proximity to Annie telling Bobby that Jean-Paul was gay and her shock that he hadn't noticed. Big thanks to you for that and to Connor and Cerebro for giving me the perfect excuse to revisit it. I think that Bobby absolutely did notice and he's just in denial because he doesn't want to talk about it and all of that because Northstar was a celebrity. So it's like, Bobby, <laughs> come on. So my question is, when Northstar eventually learned that Bobby was also gay after all, did he and Nurse Annie just have one of those conversations that drag queens and gays sometimes have that consist entirely of inflections on the word girl? Girl. 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 I think yes is the answer to that. I think he definitely texted Annie because I bet they keep in touch. And he was yeah, just like, sure funny story. Yeah. You know, and th then they had a giggle about it. Until we know whether Krakoa has a gay cruising area or if Black Tom Cassidy simply is the gay cruising area, make mine cerebro. Thank you, Jerry. Harry from Ireland writes, Dear Connor and Mr. Austin, first of all, a big congratulations on 99 episodes. Connor, I wouldn't have gotten back into comics during COVID if it weren't for you. Your commentary and insights have been a joy to listen to, and I'm so proud to have been a part of it. Now, on to the question for Mr. Austin. I've been wanting to ask a writer this for a while. What was it like writing these comics in the 2000s? We hear stories all the time about the 80s and 90s, but it feels like the aughts have been left behind in the discussion on how comics have evolved and changed over time. What's your viewpoint on that and writing for the X-Books at that time? What was the atmosphere like? On another note, I wanted to say I loved your portrayal of Polaris. Her moments in your work are something truly unique, and I've heard from a friend with bipolar disorder that how you wrote her felt very authentic. It was something truly interesting, and I was wondering if you could describe writing for a character like that. Wishing you all the best, and make mine cerebro. Bye, Harry from Ireland. Bye. So two questions there, kind of. One is just, what was the environment like at that time? I mean, I think it must have been fascinating to be one of three writers on X-Men with Grant Morrison and Chris Claremont, who are two of the most iconoclastic writers in the history of comics. Yeah, it was uh, it was crazy. And, you know, we, you're you're sort of reacting to what they do. I, I'm the third guy. So I was the third tier level guy, obviously. Mm -hmm. there very few people had even heard of me when I got the X-Men. So so you, you're you're sort of following their lead. That's why Lorna wound up crazy in my book because of what Grant did. And, and so much of what, you know, the other guys did winds up affecting kind of what you're doing. So there was that. That was different and fun. Um, probably the most notable thing was because 2000 uh, was 9-11 was just not that far distant. Right. And it was deeply personal. I was on the phone with with my editor uh, on War Machine at the time while it was happening. And he was terrified mm -hmm. that they were they were only a couple blocks from the Empire State Building. And he was terrified that they were coming there next. So because they were they didn't know. Nobody knew at that point how far it had gone and how crazy it was going to get. I mean, I was in Westchester, but, you know, lots of people's parents worked in the building or worked in the area. And it was uh, I mean, we had some some of my classmates parents were killed. It was a really wow. it was a crazy it was a crazy time. Yeah. You know, it, it feels like saying that is is glib almost because like, yes, it changed the trajectory of like foreign policy and American politics forever. But yeah. Yeah, it was it was a really crazy thing. And and I do think it shapes everything that comes afterward because you get not in your book really although well War Machine is is partially about this, which is why it's so interesting that it was it was already kind of in the can when, when yeah, this all happened. But crazy. the way that comics for a minute there, superhero comics became more jingoistic, more patriotic, more, you know, yeah. in a way that they weren't always is an interesting thing about the aughts. And much more, much more hyper aware 
we were like and it, it it affected the movies too like the first hulk movie doesn't have much in the way of a satisfying ending because hulk lands in san francisco and then does no damage and then doesn't blow up buildings because you yeah. couldn't do that at that time yeah. right it's, and we were having the same uh, reactions, like stuff that you would think nothing of, you know, superheroes having a huge battle downtown New York. Suddenly nobody wanted to do because you know what the real. Well, that's the real problem is that Marvel Comics is all set in New York City and suddenly it, New York yeah. City was a traumatized open wound and like no one wanted to see buildings in New York blowing up. I frankly am astounded that Grant got away with that big evil Zorn Magneto storyline where, you know, he flips cars off the bridge and kills. Yeah, stuff. and turns. Manhattan into an abattoir and all of this stuff and it's yeah. like I it was kind of shocking that they got away with that but yeah. you know it, it did I think change things considerably and that's an interesting time what was it like working with Grant and Chris like were you all in communication or no. was it just something where editors would tell you what they were doing the editors would tell us what they were doing my only communication with them was I would run into them at conventions gotcha it was always embarrassing because I would sit next to Grant and he would have a line going out the door and I would get one or two people. <laughs> but he was he was very sweet, very complimentary. Very... I'm just going to stop you because Grant uses they them pronouns now. So oh, so, does he? Wanna, no. Does, does, do, do they? Do they? Okay. Yes. So no. All right. Totally okay. But uh, I'm just letting you know. I'm way, way out of the comics market these days. So yeah, 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 yeah. So they were always incredibly nice and generous to me. Mm -hmm. Chris, Chris, I... Chris is an interesting guy. He's fun to be <laughs> around with, but Chris is a character. Chris is a character, definitely. But I, you know, I liked him and we wound up hanging out at conventions. And it was, I remember us watching the screening of the first few minutes of, uh, at the, I think it was at San Diego Con of the X Men movie. And he, he's just like, he's like holding his bag next to him and he's just practically shaking. He's so excited. And I just put my hand on his back and I said, You did that. Yeah. And he just looked at me with just this joy on his face. And it was just such an amazing moment. So I have, you know, I have those memories, but no, we never talked about what we were writing to, or what we were going to write. Uh, that was all through the editors as far as how that went. So that's why so much of it we found out after the fact. It's like, oh, you can't do that because Grant did this or. Right. Yeah, it does it. Right. You know. Yeah. I think that's a question people are interested in just because the current X-Men writers, it's very, very collaborative. Like they're all chatting oh, all yeah. the time in a Slack chat. And so it's made the books very, very interconnected. But Comics were never really like that. Yeah. I mean, they tried that in the 90s with Spider-Man. Like, those writers were all in really tight communication. But for the most part, my understanding is it's like that. It's like an editor will tell you, oh, you can't use that character because so-and-so is using that character or whatever, you know, and yeah. you just have to roll with it. Rob Secundus writes, Dear Connor and Chuck Austin, looking back, I think the Morrison and Austin runs complement each other well in that both of the first X-Men runs really interested in exploring cultural issues beyond bigotry using mutants. Austin's run seems to me especially interested in exploring the origins of myth and legend with its natural beings who can be mistaken for werewolves, angels, demons, even a natural explanation for heaven and hell as alternate dimensions that are home to the aforementioned mutant subspecies. The imagery even carries through arcs like She Lies with Angels and Holy War is, of course, concerned with the people and organizations that use myth to control or harm others. To Mr. Austin, I'm wondering why he chose so often to focus on myth and religion in these stories, and why the X-Men in particular seem to be useful lenses for superhero stories about these themes. Is it as simple as one of them looks like an angel and one like a demon, or is there something deeper there that resonates with the mutant metaphor? And to you both, why do you think this was the moment in time when X-Men comics were finally able to explore mutant culture? Best, Robert Secundus. I'm not sure I got the last question there, but as far as the religious themes, I was born and raised Catholic, so... <laughs> That'll do it. 
No, there's that imagery. Yeah, it was <laughs> that was just a part of my life. You're gonna die and go to hell was something you heard you know, yeah. on a daily basis around my place. So I do have to ask because the Holy War plot does hinge on the rapture. Mm -hmm. It's been 20 years and you've probably been told this a lot, but Catholicism doesn't feature the rapture. Catholicism does not. Yeah. And so the, the evil Pope lady trying to trigger the rapture, people were confused by because they're Catholics. Yeah. Well, I don't think there wasn't, it wasn't intended to be a Catholic religion. Okay. It was just styled kind of in a Catholic way but they were yeah but it was called the pope but it was the church it was it had the church of humanity church of humanity so they wanted yeah. to install kurt as the pope and then trigger a rapture with exploding communion wafers that was the, the, them taking down the catholic through the, through the yes. catholic religion but they were not but they they he was not a part of the church of humanity he was a part he was a catholic priest Actually, you know what? Now that I'm thinking about it, if they're trying to undermine the Catholic Church, then staging a rapture, which Catholics don't believe in, would be a way to do that. So I guess that does make more sense than I thought it did. I don't know if it makes any sense. That's why we're talking these things ago. out. That's why we're talking these things through. <laughs> it was 20 years ago. I don't know. I was... To answer Rob's second question, I think that it was a good time to tackle mutant culture and mutants as part of a subculture because it had been long enough since the 60s that now there were enough characters that it felt like it had to be a subculture. It's different when there's like yeah. 10 of them and they're all at Charles Xavier's house. Yeah. But once there are hundreds of these characters, you have to assume that they're going to produce their own art, that they're going to have their own ideas about religion, that all of this is yeah. something that would happen. And Grant Morrison really pushed that in their run and then unfortunately because of house of m and the decimation it all went away for a really long time but now i think krakoa is really leaning into that and certainly kurt's journey in the krakoan stories as he grapples with his catholic faith but also a new mutant status quo where mutants can come back from death in a not that you don't even need to wait for the comic book plot now they can just do it yeah uh, is the current status quo and, and how he's had to grapple with that i think a lot of that spins out of what first joe casey and then chuck were doing with his crisis of faith in the church of humanity stuff so we're back you know we're back <laughs> on those themes and i think that those themes are what makes sense because if readers identify with mutants and are to identify with the mutants as a minority group minority groups do have culture yes that's something that's important if you want it to feel real and if you want the metaphor to track yeah Ian Hernandez writes, hello, Connor and Chuck. Chuck, I don't have a nurse any questions specifically, but Connor said it was okay to ask general questions. So I'm guessing he's far down the list of future Cerebra episodes and therefore need to ask about Mamomax. Did he get all of his powers at once or is one mutation primary and the other secondary? Was he a forlorn acid barfing mutant who later turned into an elephant or a forlorn elephantine mutant who later started barfing acid? I've always been curious since it's an odd combo of mutant powers. The Austin run was a big part of my reintroduction to the X-Men after several years of not reading comics and will always have a special place in this fan's heart. Thank you for putting this episode together, Connor. Until another Guthrie sibling has sky sex above poor Mama Lucinda, make mine Cerebro. Um, did I create Mama Max? You did. I honestly don't know what I was thinking. I don't know what, I don't know <laughs> what Mama Max is. I don't know. I mean, there I barely, you have it. There were times when it was just like, I need a weird mutant in the background. <laughs> Here's a weird mutant in the background. Yeah, sorry, I haven't got a better answer for you. Than that. <laughs> That's okay. 
Mike Layton writes, hello, Connor. Congrats on nearly 100 episodes of this amazing podcast. You more than earned it. I can't wait to celebrate when you've crossed into triple digits. Well, thank you, Mike. As for Mr. Austin, I have to say I really enjoyed your work on one of my favorite Marvel titles, Exiles. I thought you were a perfect writer to take over after Judd Winnick left, and you wrote some of my favorite issues. Your characterization of the Exiles version of Magic, Mimic's tenure as the leader, and the great final bout between Weapon X and the Exiles are highlights I won't ever forget. So once again, thank you. Thank you. For one quick Exiles question, if I may, what was the inspiration to bring Hyperion into the book? You made him one of the best villains the exiles ever faced thank you again for all your hard work cinema freak x from the discord uh hyperion was not my idea it was i'm not sure if it was i was working very closely with mike rach on that in fact he helped me to write parts of it mm -hmm. so i have to give him credit for that he doesn't like me outing him about that but he did he, <laughs> it was great it was either him or judd who had judd like ended it with hyperion on the last page or something and mm if I remember correctly. So Hyperion was... It was already in play. Yeah, it was already in play. The villain I inherited, so... Gotcha. CJ Short writes, Dear Connor and Chuck, I've been listening for a while and have never written in, but I couldn't help myself when I saw Chuck Austin was going to be on the podcast. Nurse Annie, her son, and the reintroduction of Havoc to the Xbox after Mutant X was something I didn't know I needed, but ended up greatly enjoying. My question is about the short exile subplot with that alternate reality Mutant X Havoc trying to hold on to his counterpart's body. Was there ever a plan to do more with that? It feels like an avenue that was left unexplored. I would have loved to see Earth-1298 Havoc run amok among our heroes and maybe even team up with the not entirely mentally well Lorna. Thanks for the fun read chuck and thank you connor for giving me my favorite comic book podcast cj cj crash override on twitter uh, that's interesting i never had any specific story ideas like that but if there's one thing that's come out of this is like god it would might be fun to write x-men again <laughs> <laughs> i mean they're doing that x-men legends book where oh, yeah. people come back for like one-offs or like two issues you should pitch one i think that'd be fun i don't, I don't think I, I don't think marvel ever wants me back to be honest <laughs> Eddie Ennian writes, Hwagwan and Kia Ora Connor started listening to the podcast recently and it bumped Jay and Miles from their four year streak at the top spot of my Spotify rap podcast in maybe two months. So congrats. So, oh, well, thank you. That's really flattering. I hope that they were still number two. They're great. I have a question for Chuck about Kiwi Black. As a mixed-race Afro-Jamaican, I think it was inevitable that I was drawn to the X-Men. At age 13, I remember scouring Wikipedia for X-Men. I hate that Wikipedia existed when you were 13, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> for for X-Men characters and their stories, because I lived in rural New Zealand and had limited access to comics. Kiwi Black was a character who immediately caught my attention because he was from New Zealand, a place that rarely gets repped in comics from the big two, but also because he was a visibly Maori character. What was your inspiration for co-creating that character and what trajectory did you envision for him? Would you have delved deeper into his wakapapa genealogy and connections to Te Ao Maori, the Maori worldview? I'm probably butchering these pronunciations, by the way, but I'm trying my best. I ask because like representations of Australian Aboriginal characters, I've noticed a bit of a trend across the few Maori characters that exist in Marvel. They draw heavily from Maori aesthetics, such as Tamoko, traditional tattoos, but often don't have specific iwi or hapu links. Is this something you would have wanted to explore more or how would you have wanted to utilize him going forward if you'd done more with the character the marvel atlas noted him as coming from ruatoria on the east coast would that have come into play big fan of the podcast and if you ever come back for an azazel episode i have more questions lol cheers eddie <laughs> aka anansi so kiwi black what's the gist he was one of the half brothers of nightcrawler introduced in the draco yes and has not seen a ton of use afterward i don't think but what were your thoughts on that character 
Well, I he was absolutely based on the Maori, and I wanted to get into it in uh, a lot of terrific ways. I, I was hoping to be able to at some point, but <clears throat> weirdly, he didn't resonate with anybody except Eddie. I think. <laughs> But I love the idea. He was he was this sort of stoic, quiet character. He had a lot of the history that um, that Eddie's talking about. He, he's based on the. My wife was a producer for Power Rangers for a number of years, mm. and so she would make frequent trips to New Zealand where they were filming the show. And one summer, we went down there uh, with the girls, and we did a, 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 a traveled all around the place, and including where Kiwi Black is from. And um, we went to displays and and historical events and and maori dances and where they you know they would show us a, uh, a lot of the history and the and the weaponry which is i think kiwi black actually uses a a, a sort of a uh, what's it was like a skull opening weapon yeah so yeah it was all based in in that it was based in like the, the month or so that we were in new zealand traveling around and always running into various different maori people and situations and history and um, i wanted to kind of delve into all of that but there just wasn't any interest at the time there wasn't any place to go with him unfortunately i would love to well you never know maybe he'll pop back up the thing about characters like that where they are so singular within a franchise is that there is always someone for whom they really resonate and then you yeah. never know who ends up writing comics someday that's part of the joy of creating in a shared world right yeah and that's actually one of the things that i learned while i was writing comics is that they were tr they kept trying to reach out to non-fans back into sort of the broader marketplace again to draw mm -hmm. in new readers and we were able to do that on the on the the X-Men on my X-Men run. They were they brought in a lot of new readers or readers who had given up on the X-Men for years. I would hear that all the time. But the marketplace is generally largely long-term fans. And a mm -hmm. lot of those fans do gravitate towards one small specific character. And that's why I would never today kill off a character like Skin. Sure, because so many people love him. And who knows that until you start talking to the fans, you know. And, you know, I would go to conventions and people come up to me and tell me, like like Eddie, that, that you know, this is the, uh, Kiwi Black was my favorite character. And it's like, how can you deny this person their favorite character right. from New Zealand, you know, by killing them off for no particular reason? So so I think it's it's a different marketplace and you kind of have to make those adjustments. If, if you're going to continue to to sell to a very specific marketplace, you got to keep in mind that these people are passionate about their you know, that's one of the things that goes on with Green Green Lantern all the time. It's like people love every iteration, but different people love everyone every has a different favorite Green Lantern. Yeah. yeah. And so it's it's often a competition within them of like which Green yeah. Lantern gets to be on this iteration of the Justice League. Yeah. Because you've got the people who grew up with Hal Jordan. Then you've got the people who grew up with Kyle Rayner. Then you've got the people who grew up with the cartoon where Jon Stewart is the main Green Lantern. And then yep. you've got the three or four that have come afterward. Then you got Guy Gardner. It's like, that's a tricky one. Yeah. And definitely with the X-Men, I mean, I've talked about on this show in particular around the time that you were writing, they introduced, because Grant Morrison expanded the school so much, yeah. they introduced like 50 new characters who right. were in that age cohort and everyone who was growing up at that time has like one or two of those characters that they love, but there isn't room for all 50 of them Yeah, in a book. You got to pick one. And so certain ones get attention and others don't. And it leads to a lot of service in the fandom. And I'm like, guys, you just, you, there's only so much real estate on the page, you know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, maybe Maggot deserves his stories, but it's hard, you know, it's hard to sell Maggot to everybody. 
Exactly, right? <laughs> so, you know, uh, you got to wait for someone who's really passionate about that character and who has a story in mind. Phil Aitken writes, hello, Connor, esteemed guest. First of all, Mr. Austin, I'm a big fan of your work in animation. Please keep it up. Thank you. I'm sure you plan to. <laughs> for my question, how do you think Annie would feel about the mutant state of Krakoa? She eventually came around to a certain comfort level with mutants, but it took her time. Has she become a more supportive ally in the time since she left Xavier's? Has she become uncomfortable again now that mutants are becoming an assertive world power. I've looked forward to the potential of this episode ever since Connor first threw the idea out there on the pod, and I look forward to the discussion. Thanks. Until we get the Annie, Maddie, Lorna polycule, we truly deserve to make Alex miserable, make mine cerebro. Phil, flat skin Phil on Discord. I actually had a story where um, if I had continued on with the series where Annie is asked to come back by Lorna. Mm. She seeks her out, and the two of them actually have a bonding moment. She finds out that Annie is having a hard time because she, now she is on the side of mutants. And so she finds herself defending them among people who are bigots about it. She has essentially, almost without knowing it, has converted. Right. And it's finding her place a lot less comfortable than it was before. Because she, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, when I was younger, one of my best friends came out in college um, and he only came out by accident and he didn't want to. And he was terrified when I found out because another man kissed him in front of me. And we had a, a long conversation about it and I'd known him for years and I couldn't, you know, I, it, it basically changed my point of view. But then all of a sudden you realize how often you're sitting around other straight people who just make gay jokes just right. all the time. And so it, uh, that's kind of what I wanted to do with Annie, where she's like, she's, she thinks she's just back in this place again, where she doesn't have to worry about the chaos and, and whatnot. But now she knows mutants are people. So she's like, wait, shut the fuck up. Now she's not comfortable. Yeah. yeah. And there's this, there's a famous scene in Shogun that I love where he's, he, all he wants to do is get back to England and get back to his shipmates and get back to England. And after spending all this time in Japan where he learns to take baths and where he learns to sleep right. in a clean room, he comes across <laughs> his shipmates. And as he's having a conversation with them about what they're going to do and how they're going to build, a, get a hold of a ship and he starts scratching and he just starts scratching. And he, all of a sudden he realized, and they're sitting there and they're filthy and they're drinking out of like maggot filled bowls. And he realizes I am not the same person that I used to be. I may never be able to go back. Yeah. I got to get back to Japan right now. Yeah. Clean. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, you know, they're remaking that. Oh, are they? Yeah. With, uh, I think with like Japanese people on the writing staff in a way that oh, they weren't. In the, so it's going to be interesting to see like, that was my grandfather's favorite book was Shogun. Great book, yeah. But it is also a very white perspective on Japan. So it would be interesting to get more people in the room because it is such a classic, but you do yeah. want to. Absolutely. You know. This is sort of similar to what we just touched on, but I really liked the question, so I'm going to read it. Julia Blunk writes, Hi, Connor. As always, you know I'm perpetually in awe of everything you've done in this podcast and tremendously proud of your successes. Sometimes I just point at you and go, I knew he'd be big from the day I first saw him on an... <laughs> I knew he'd be big from the day I first saw him on the original Cursed website. I'm so proud of my boy. Case in point, I'm so glad you got this interview. Julia and I became friends on like LiveJournal and Tumblr and all of those oh, social wow. medias that have since become deprecated, thankfully, because <laughs> it's enough of my life that they ate up. I want to preface that I have a real soft spot for Mr. Austin's run on X-Men. I know it's polarizing, but rereading it always takes me back to my childhood, and I will always be fond of the story beats. I think in particular with Nurse Annie, there was a really interesting theme running through the character. The idea that our parents are only human, and that they love us, they're only creatures of their own past and historical moments. 
Parents in comic books are usually either overwhelmingly supportive or horrible, abusive, literal monsters. And while both of those extremes exist in real life, I don't think they're all that common. Much more often, our parents are imperfect people whose allyship is very flawed. Anyone who is LGBT or mixed race or in some way othered by society will often find that our parents really love us and are to some extent trying their best, but are still holding on to their own traumas and prejudices. In this way, I think my question for Mr. Austin would be, if you had to rewrite this character now, considering Krakoa and how conversations about marginalized groups have changed in real life, how would your take on that character change, if at all? Does Annie, for instance, defend mutants to some aggressive bigot, but still feel scared about the idea of her son leaving her to live on some island? Does she try to remain supportive of Carter engaging with mutant culture, but doesn't like the idea of him speaking Krakoan because it makes her think of her ex? Does she go on Twitter or Facebook and find herself really confused by the different narratives about mutants that other humans are making? Just general thoughts on this would be really interesting to me. There's loads of interesting places you can go with human characters in the X-Men universe, and I think it's a shame writers don't try to go there more often. Much love to both of you, and until have pisses Bobby a new body make mine cerebro <laughs> love Julia Blanc that's very sweet of you Julia thank you very much yeah I mean I'm sure that if I wrote Annie today I would write her differently than I did then it was a very different time I mean really as as br they were pretty brave with the things that they let me do because it was it was really borderline and we got we got some hate mail about what we were doing particularly with North Star so mm -hmm. I'm always very pleased and proud of what they allowed us to do, allowed me to do, uh, allowed the artists to do. But with Annie, um, yeah, I mean, we just talked about some of the things that I would have done with her if I had been able to come back to her um, and have her defending mutants. And and I honestly, and maybe sadly, I haven't read a comic book since I left comics 20 oh, years ago. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on with Krakoa or any of that, but it's cool. And you should, uh, you should maybe just like, have a little listen to a certain podcast that your guest starring on right now and see if you like it. People write in all the time and they're saying, I haven't read an X-Men comic since 2005 or whatever. And part of what I do is every episode is about one character. So if there's a character that you like, you listen to their episode. I'll tell you everything that's happened in the last 25 years and you'll, you know, yeah. be, it's, now you're caught up. I was like, Betsy's Captain Britain now. You're like, holy shit. I'm like, that's the first episode and I've got the writer on to talk about it. And it's cool. It's fun. Okay. Just a thought, but no pressure. They're long episodes. And I realize you're a busy guy making like, you know, extremely celebrated television shows. So I don't <laughs> want to take up too much of your time. Marissa Kosky writes, Dear Connor and esteemed guest Chuck Austin, since this is my first time writing in, I must start by telling Connor how great this podcast has been for me. The conversations you and your guests have are so thoughtful and entertaining. I'm always learning new things and getting a new perspective on the characters. Thank you for all the work you put into the show. Well, thank you, Marissa. Mr. Austin, you are the writer I imprinted on. I had been a fan of the X-Men since the 90s cartoon, but it was my sophomore year of high school when I got into the comics. Some of my friends started bringing the floppies to school to share, and I was instantly hooked on the monthly stories and the conversations with my friends that would follow. I didn't care about the writers of comics yet. I only wanted to follow my favorite character, Iceman. So Uncanny X-Men became the first comic on my pull list just as you were taking it over. I had an amazing time. Your comics provoked endless hours of conversations with friends. We debated how to say Annie's last name, tried to figure out how many Guthrie's there were. Your comics led me down the rabbit hole of fandom as I asked Jeeves my way to uncannyxmen.net, discovered fan fiction, role-playing, and so many GeoCities pages with questionable content. Your work inspired me to fill notebooks with my own stories and doodle comics, and I still have friendships that were built on the mutual experience of reading and arguing about the Draco in real time. So thank you as well, Mr. Austin. Your wild run made me a comics fan. Oh, thank you. 
And just to answer her question, because the, it was their name after friends, people used to be friends of mine. Gazakanian. Gazakanian. I've been Gazakanian. saying Gazakanian, and I gotta. I'm gonna fix that vowel now going forward. Well, they wouldn't correct you. I mean, it's it's like everybody knows that. Right, but but it, it, they pronounce it Gazakanian to us. So I will fix that going forward. And when I write the Annie Gazakanian prestige miniseries someday, <laughs> I will be sure to correct people when they say it wrong. Now, for some actual questions, I have three. One, would Annie have stayed in touch with any X-Men after she left? Did she Facebook stalk Alex or brunch with Jean-Paul to catch up on all the gossip? Has she had an awkward running with Lorna at Starbucks? I think she and Jean-Paul definitely keep in touch. And I think that it would be very funny to throw her into a scene with Lorna in some way. I know that you were saying that you wanted to have them team up eventually if you had continued on the the book. I I don't know if they would... But you get what I mean, that Lorna would be like, we need Annie right now because she has insight into this or whatever. I think that would have been fun. Two, do you have an elevator pitch for a Nurse Annie X-Men Legends issue? Or is there a different character you'd want to revisit for a one-shot if Marvel was interested? Oh, man. Marvel listens to this podcast. Lots of people. So just shoot your shot here, Chuck, if you want. You know, just you just said that people think you're great at one-shots. There's no reason they couldn't give you an X-Men Legends one-shot to do whatever the hell you want. Uh, I guess that's true. God, I won I won the uh, Genesis Award for the uh, Do They Suffer? So, you know. Yeah. Well, I don't remember that, where that was. That was in was in one of the other X-Men books, the other X spin-off books. Mm-hmm. But uh, it was a Sammy and Juggernaut story. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm always proud of the one shots. I would love to. I mean, I, I wouldn't I would have a lot of fun with it. I would enjoy it, I think. Uh, I think it would be fun to revisit Nurse Annie and just have Carter be a teenager now and see how their life has changed. You know, you know it's so funny because they were like my my editor on Superman, Eddie Berganza. He pulled me aside once at a convention and he said, you know what? I read the X-Men for the X-Men, not for the fucking nurse. So mm. <laughs> I gotta, I got to <laughs> say. Not everybody felt that way about Annie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the like the reason I wanted to peg this on her is because she is a character who caught a lot of criticism for exactly that reason. But that's yeah. why I find her interesting, because I have always been intrigued by the human characters who are kind of on the periphery. Can They Suffer, by the way, for people who are listening, is X-Men Unlimited 44. There you go. From that run of Unlimited in the aughts. Oh, here's a great question. Her third question, her third and final question. Why Mindy with two E's? Just a name you liked or was there more inspiration behind it? I'm always curious how writers decide on names for characters. That was one of the Stepford Cuckoos, the one that Grant didn't get to name. You named her Mindy with two E's. Oh, uh, well, they, it, it, it had to go with the other two because the other two didn't weren't the other two similar. No, in fact, it's a big, it's another joke that we've made a lot on the show is that the other ones, their initials spell out spice, like the Spice Girls or Sugar Spice. And, and oh, really? So she was supposed to be an I, but Grant Morrison hadn't had a chance to put it on the page yet. And then you made it an M. So fans sometimes call them the Spumps Girls. And then Matt Fraction established that Mindy is something she made up because her actual name is Irma and she hates it. Oh, well, that's great. So that was a funny fix. Good. Yeah. Awesome. So it I all worked it. out in the end. Uh, um, Matt Fraction is one of the few people that I have read, so I appreciate that he fixed that for me. <laughs> I don't think we knew that it was Spice Girls at the time. Nobody. It was nobody... an Easter egg that I don't. I mean, it was just that the yeah. other ones are Sophie, Phoebe, Celeste, and Esme. So there oh was an I in the middle that was missing. That makes sense because I grew yeah. up. I mean, my my girls just God endlessly listen to the Spice Girls. Oh sorry. yeah, right. No, it was they were Grant's send up to a bunch of different things. It was like the Midwich Cuckoos, the Stepford Wives, the Prime of Mischief 
Dean Brody and the Spice Girls all at once. I don't know. Which that's a very Grant Morrison galaxy brain psychedelic kind of mashup to do. But those characters have endured in terms of more recent characters who really stuck. Those characters really stuck. Interesting. Thank you, Connor, for all the work you put into this show. I never thought I'd get the chance to hear Mr. Austin speak about his run and reflect on how it influenced me as a newbie reader. And thank you again, Mr. Austin. Without your run, I wouldn't be the X-Men fan I am today. Sincerely, Marissa Kosky. Thank you. We have two more questions that are a little more general, but before we get to them, I have two that I just want to rapid fire hit you with. Who was Carter's father supposed to be? There's lots of like conflicting information on this. Was that something you ever planned to reveal or what? We argued about it a lot. And um, I'm not at liberty to say. (laughs) (laughs) The rumor is that you wanted it to be Magneto and were told no. I did want it to be Magneto and was told no. Yes. Okay. I mean, that... With this plot that was going on with Polaris, that would have been really crazy. So that's, I, that's what I, I get. Why that would have been a but having Magneto be Nurse Annie's abusive ex is probably not something they wanted to do. Well, that was that got settled early on. So I we changed it before I wrote before it. The uh, before the abuse backstory, it was not backstory, Magneto. Yeah. Gotcha. Originally, okay. it was a, an older man that she loved who had been injured in a hospital similar to Alex, and then he had abandoned her. Gotcha. It was like at a low moment in his life, he deigned to have sex with a a human. That's interesting. But that was next. Similarly, who was the nefarious force communing with Carter Gazakanian? Was it supposed to be Cassandra Nova? Because that's been a longstanding rumor that that was the plan and that then Whedon was using Cassandra Nova so you couldn't use Cassandra Nova. I don't know why they changed it, but yeah. And actually the the panel was drawn at the end where you see Carter sitting in the back seat and there's like a big empty space next to him. Yeah. Originally, Cassandra Nova was sitting in that seat (laughs) as like a ghostly entity. Wow. Yeah. And uh, they changed their mind. So they pulled out that layer. And so it just never got revealed who it was or what it was. It never got revealed who it was, no. But if I I were to come back, originally I was thinking it was the dad. Mm Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe someday. Maybe someday. Maybe someday. Well, again, if I ever get to write the Annie's World Prestige miniseries, I'll consult you on the reveals. (laughs) And then uh, the last thing I wanted to ask about was the death of Squid Boy. Yeah. Because that is such a visceral, horrific scene. And I was wondering if you had any pushback about that or whether that was always the plan with the character or where that came from. That was the plan from day one. No pushback whatsoever. The idea was to give, uh, that was the thing that finally pushes Kane from the dark side to the, to never Mm -hmm. be able to go back to the dark side again. Cause he, he loved that kid. Yeah. That would be the story that I'd want to write is the Kane Sammy reunion story. Yeah. That'd be fun. They should do that. Marvel, if you're listening. (laughs) I, that's a catchphrase. I'm sorry on this show because I, I like to shout out Marvel if they're listening. Two more questions. Teal writes, hi, Mr. Austin. I'm way more familiar with your TV work than your comics work. I'm a big fan of the She-Ra reboot. What have you learned about creative work from viewing it through the different lenses of writing, art, and production? Do you think the skills have transferred to each other? Also, how has the possibility of creating work with queer themes changed during your working lifetime? North Star's role in 2000's X-Men and the new She-Ra might as well be from different planets. Thank you, and looking forward to this episode, Teal. Well, it's changed because society has changed. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they 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 uh, got the gay marriage bill through, and then they had, you know, the rainbow colors on the White House one day, and all of a sudden, 
it shifted. Everything shifted mm-hmm. because everybody, I mean, really, finally, everybody owned up to the fact that they knew or related to somebody who was gay. And they really, this mattered to them that they had, that their family members or their loved ones had a sense of safety and and the sense of rights. So that wasn't the case back in 2000. Right. So things have changed so much in yeah. 20 years. And now, of course, we're seeing the pendulum swing again. And those same people are now like, oh, trans people need to be stopped. And it's the same thing that will get us through that, I think, is yeah. people saying, well, but my friend is transgender, my child is trans, you know, and unfortunately, yeah. one of the worst things about being a minority group in this country is that it does take people from the majority validating you as a person for the general public sometimes to agree. Yeah. I think that that's one way that the Nurse Annie character was very effective at the time because Nurse Annie is an outsider who comes in, has her preconceptions about mutants being dangerous for reasons that are valid in her experience. And then she's like, but my son is a mutant. I love my son. I have to figure out a way through. And at the same time, she's very accepting of North Star as a gay man. She has her own things going on and it shows the complexity of people. So I think that stories like that that you told back then set the stage for a story like She-Ra where Andy Stevenson is a trans creator, there are queer and trans characters in the show and it's all presented as very normal and there's a whole generation of kids now who have grown up loving that show and loving other shows like Steven Universe that have these themes. Yep. And I think that You know, of course, like conservative wackos will say it's like indoctrination or whatever, but they said the same thing about segregating schools. Like it's always children have to learn that people are people because it's like you said, bigotry is a learned behavior. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And we could see the tide changing even when we were younger because the girls had a very different attitude about it. There was when Proposition 8 was your daughters, you mean? Yeah, my daughters. Back around the time when I was writing comics, Proposition 8 hit. California. Mm-hmm. And it was just horrific. And, and there was a lot of people arguing about it back and forth. And I remember having to explain it once to my youngest daughter. And she just looked at me with this absolute confused look on her face. And she said, but Jackie is gay. Why would they be mean to Jackie? She's so sweet. Right. That was that moment when I realized, okay, this is the transition period. It's going to take years, but we will eventually get there because kids are understanding they're more empathic about things than they used to be. So, so yeah, I mean, everything would change. The way you approach everything is different. The way we approached She-Ra was different, you know, you know, and I didn't really have anything to do with the writing. That was all ND and and the other writers. So I was just overseeing it to make sure that the, you know, the vision stayed consistent and that they were able to do what they mm-hmm. do everything they wanted to do to the, to their strongest ability. And how do you feel about the different role of being a writer or an artist or a producer? Do you feel that they've all fed each other? Are they different parts of your brain or is it all kind of the same thing for you? Uh, they all feed off of each other. You Because all of the disciplines have, you, you rely on the same methods of storytelling, you know, the way that you build a story, the way that you connect emotionally with an audience, all of those things are, are they transfer across the various different skills. Not everybody can see all of those things. And that's why a, a producer like somebody like me is good because I can look at the boards and say, well, you need to change the camera angle here to pull the emotions out a little bit more that are actually in the story, or you need an extra scene here to hit this plot point a little stronger. So for me, it's, that's one of the, I think one of the reasons why I've been an effective producer is because I can see it from all of those different points of view. 
Um, but, uh, but they're, all the disciplines are tied together. You absolutely are following along the same uh, storytelling and emotional template. Um, and I should probably get going here to pick up my son. Yes. This is the last, last question. Krakoa Welcomes writes, what was the first song at Havoc and Polaris's wedding? Screams of terror don't count. <laughs> and if Annie and Alex had gotten married afterward, how would the two ceremonies differ apart from presumably using plastic cutlery? <laughs> um, <laughs> wow. I would really have to give it some thought as far as what the song was. Um, uh, Cuts like a knife. Cuts, Cuts like a knife. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I uh, every breath you take, there's a couple that I think could work <laughs> yeah. uh, for Lorna's mental state at that time. Yeah. Chuck, thank you so much for being my guest. This has been a really great experience. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Thanks. I will let you go because I know you have to go pick up your kid. But do you have anything that you'd like to plug to our listeners before you go? Uh, Edge World is out. I mean, that's but you know you have to have a Kindle if you want to read that. But it's uh, uh, it's I, I love it. I love the way it's turning out. I'm having a full blast with it. I wish it would sell more so that we could just do it forever. Well, so go buy some people if you're listening. <laughs> Support our friend, friend of the pod, Chuck Austin. Yeah. Edge World available now. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at DreamOfOrganon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus links to the Discord server, the merch store, and much, much more at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. For $5 a month at the House of Zaladane tier at Patreon.com slash CerebroCast, you can get exclusive access to the secret files, bonus episodes, plus an ad-free version of every episode as soon as they come out, and a whole bunch of bonus content coming down the pipe, including the return of the Cerebro Claremont Marathon. Episode 100 will be a momentous event featuring fan favorite guest Sarah Century as we dig deep on Madeline Pryor, aka Anodyne, the Goblin Queen, and many, many other titles. It's very confusing and we'll get there. Don't worry, we're going to explain every single bit of it for you. Questions are closed for that episode because... It's the end of the season, guys, and I got to just go, go, go. But next episode, I will also be announcing the season four premiere. So stay tuned for that. Thank you, as always, for your support. And until next time, everybody, bye. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks so much. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is... X-Men.